Steve and Kevin review Amon Ket and the Restricted List updates on episode 65 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 65 of So Many Insane Plays, our Amonkhet Vintage set review and examination of the restriction of Gush and Gataxian probe. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. <laughs> if you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. Well, Steve, it's a sad day in Gushland, <laughs> but we do have a few other announcements to get to before we, we tackle the elephant in the room here, okay? And we have a big one, a big announcement, right? Because we finally got the time and date and location of Eternal Weekend for North America, which is exciting. And to the surprise of many, it has moved again. We're now <laughs> in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the David Lawrence Convention Center, October 19 through 22, and we got the art for the prizes, that is the, the grand prizes for Vintage and Legacy. We're starting again with Black Lotus, mm-hmm. this time by Steve Belladin. And it's it's a pretty beautiful art. Did, and then, did, we, wor- did we work our way through all the no. Power 9? No, that's no. the thing. We didn't get back through the whole cycle again. Uh, and then Legacy has Savannah done by Mark Poole, which is very nice as well. This Pittsburgh business is interesting, right? It's a bit of a, <laughs> it's a, bit of a, a midpoint between the... The Great Lakes region, well, I mean, it's in the Great Lakes region, but between Columbus and... The, mid, the Midwest players and, yeah, the, and the, the East Coast. Atlantic Corridor, yeah, the PA, New York crowd. It's, so, it's interesting. I mean, Pittsburgh is, like Columbus, a great location. It's a great Midwestern city, in my opinion. It's got a, a beautiful downtown. It's got a lot going on. Uh, used to be, you know, a core Rust Belt, but actually it's, it's a really has been up and coming over the last couple of years it's been a boomtown um have you been be to fun. that convention center i have not i i don't rec- i can't recall whether i've been to the convention center but i spent a lot of time downtown okay and uh, it's uh there's a lot to do well uh, pittsburgh does have several fans in the community and some people have, have raised their voice saying that they're very happy with it and i think it's close enough to columbus and uh philadelphia and the rest of the east coast that n- you know no one is too unhappy but everyone is a little bit like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's the perfect utilitarian spot. Every, everyone is, you know, a little bit off from where they would be. Right. So there's mi- minimal suffering. <laughs> it's a good compromise. But, but there are probably few people who are just thrilled with Pittsburgh. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. That crowd is small. Yeah. So we will see you there, any of you who are hearing our voices right now, and we'll make it to Eternal Weekend. Steve and I will be there, and it'll be a good time. No, oh, also, I think I was we were about to say, say the same thing. Yes, we were. Okay, you go ahead. <laughs> well, Eternal Central has is, is announced that they will be scheduling and holding yet another old school event. Um, the details are yet to come, but I think they have established that they will be holding it that Thursday. We don't know as of yet when the Vintage Championship will be, because last year, you may recall, Vintage Championship was held on Friday and top eight of both the Vintage and Legacy Championships were held on Sunday. That 
um, schedule made it a little more difficult for the old school crowd because it means that you had to choose between playing old school, which is awesome, or right. the vintage prelims, which are also fun, but, you know. Have different kind of value. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I know that many of the old school players who have participated in Eternal Central's recent events were contacted by Jayco asking for feedback about the nature of the event, the location, the timing, all that stuff. So he's taking community input and he's taking it very seriously. That, yeah. that will influence his decision and selection for location and such. As I recall, there were a, a few critics following last year's events saying that... Um, it's interesting. It wasn't actually, as I recall, it wasn't actually criticisms from the old school players. It was actually <laughs> criticisms from the vintage players who felt like the old school event drained the prelims of some of the competition and fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, there, there's no denying that there was overlap there and some people made sacrifices. Uh, I, I, for one, would have played in a trial if it wasn't for the old school, but I decided to try it out and it had a good time, but... Uh, so I'll be considering the same thing again this year. <clears throat> Steve, what do you think? I mean, if it was the same as 2016, would you play in the old school again as opposed to a trial? Oh, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> old school is a unique experience. And to mm -hmm. get it, you know, as long as it's constructed the same way, that has it, the, the feel and flavor of the way Eternal Central sets it up is undeniably uh, attractive. Um, yeah. It's just, a, it's a singular experience. And even though the ban and restricted list is not exactly what I would choose, um, it's it's still really fun. Yeah, I had a great time as well. I'll be seriously considering a trial if there's conflict again, but I still agree with you. It was a good time. So you you are would not consider old school again, or no? I would consider. My point is, is I'm I'm not 100 percent either way. I'm considering it. it pending the rest of the scheduling and such. So what other announcements do you have, Steve? Let's just get to the big one. All right, fair enough. So we are recording on the day of release of the latest banner restricted list announcement. And clearly we have a lot to talk about. We've already anticipated the the background information here. We covered the last announcement where there were no changes and we talked about some of the things they said at that time. And we have another paragraph plus a few more sentences here related specifically to the choice in vintage that we will read verbatim and then analyze. There is one note I'd like to introduce before we read the announcement and explanation. And that is that in between our last podcast, Kevin and I had a conversation. And one of the things that we had neglected to mention and should have, because we spent a good deal of time on the previous BNR, um, which was a no change announcement, we spent a lot of time on the, the explanation that was provided. One of the things we didn't mention is that based upon the results of the Eternal Weekend Europe, the decision about what to do at this point is actually revealing in a very critical way. In particular, if they had decided to do something, which we now know they did, based upon those results, it tells you how much weight the results bear on that, that decision versus community feedback. Because if you recall, in the last announcement, they said, we're not making any decisions, but we are going to wait and see the results of this big tournament. And we're also going to continue to collect feedback. So in a sense, this decision is a litmus test. It's a litmus test for, and we know very clearly now, what information ends up being decisive. I think I think it's clear. Um, Kevin, do you, do you, 
think you could better articulate what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we only alluded to it in general in our last discussion about how they were clear about, well, somewhat clear about what metrics were important to them. They, they clearly cited tournament results, like they were waiting for Eternal Weekend Paris, as well as balancing community feedback and player input. And I think, Steve, what you're pointing out specifically is that this, the fact that there was no action taken then and we have the action we've taken now, we can zero in on the relative weightings and values in their mind that went into the current decision or latest decision. Exactly. And specifically, tournament results and data vis-a-vis community feedback. Exactly. So, so let me go ahead and read this announcement. By now, everyone should know that both Gush and Gitaxian Probe are restricted. Um, and here's what they had to say. In Vintage, the, and by the way, this was Aaron Forsyth writing this, so this is not the uh, anonymous DCI. <laughs> That's this a little the, unusual, too. It, it is. It is unusual. I also noticed that Aaron's position has changed. He's now Senior dire- Design Director. I thought that his position was Head of R&D. So I don't, I don't know if that is a... Yeah. Anyway, I don't know the significance of that, but I, I, <laughs> I hadn't noticed it. that. Neither do I. <laughs> um, anyway, so here's what he said. <clears throat> In Vintage, the metagame has come to a bit of a standstill as Monastery Mentor decks face down their main predator, Workshop decks. The primary issue seems to resolve, revolve around the prevalence of free draw spells for the Mentor deck that let it churn through its library for no mana while creating an abundance of tokens. We believe that by removing these free draw spells and the perfect information that comes with Gitaxian Probe, we will significantly weaken Monastery Mentor-based strategies. Hopefully, the move away from free spells in the Mentor decks will lessen the impact of the Workshop's deck's various sphere of resistance effects opening up the metagame. There is a lot to unpack in there. Um, And we have one, two, three, four sentences with a number of different clauses in there. Let's just start at a high-level reading. Kevin, without parsing it, what seems to be the main driver here? The paragraph itself is bookended by comments about the metagame. (laughs) The the word standstill stands out and not in a punny capital standstill way and ends with opening up the metagame. I think the bookending of those two phrases slash words is key to understanding what they're getting at but unfortunately everything in between them kind of muddies the water (laughs) so but i believe that we're talking about format diversity here mixed with a little bit of the desirability for change i guess is what i would call it the word standstill implies stagnation yes which we've never ever discussed as a an influence on policy decision for metagaming out in vintage at least you know it's something right. like standard maybe but not in vintage yeah i think what you're saying and what i wanted to draw out is perhaps what's most interesting about this explanation is what is not said that is right this, which is everything this, they had positioned themselves as uh, being important to them last announcement right it, it, the the there is not one mention here about diversity, unless you say opening up the metagame. But opening up the metagame here could be read as that these two decks or this one deck is dominating the metagame and we want to open it up, or that that these two decks are inhibiting the evolution of the format and therefore it's just stagnating. But if you read just the words here and not in between the lines, it's the former. 
that is the most textual reading, right? Not the latter. That is to say, this rationale read from a purely textual perspective, right? Not in context, but in a purely textual perspective, in, in a kind of intra-hermeneutical way, appears to be a concern about the stagnation of the metagame, right? That appears to be the primary concern. I, I think I agree with you, but I would like to reframe the question to see if it helps you summarize. And that is, maybe I'm skipping to the end here, so forgive me, but what do you think is the measure of success with this action? <laughs> What, what do you mean by by success? You mean like I what, mean from Forsyth's yeah. point of view? What do you think will be a successful result of these restrictions? <laughs> I think I think you are leaping ahead. Here's here's the issue. I, I think I am, but yeah. but I still think it's instructive. Well, in our last podcast, I spent a lot of time talking about how you define the goal that you're trying to achieve, and then how you pursue a policy that is really tailored to that goal. And before our last podcast, I heard two concerns that were, let's say, really well aired in the vintage community mm-hmm. regard with respect to Gush and, and company. The first was the dominance of the Gush Mentor deck. The other concern is that Gush decks as a category of blue decks or a subset of blue decks oppressed and therefore repressed or su- suppressed other blue decks. So the the rationale or the goal there is that if you restrict Gush, you'll free up other blue decks to flourish in that part of the metagame. Um, but those are two very different goals. And I think what's challenging here is that there may be consensus that something has to happen. I want to point to that in a second. There's pr- From my perspective, this is not a totally unreasonable decision, and I'll explain why. There may be consensus that there's a problem or something has to happen among a majority of the vintage player base. Now, you and I might disagree whether the data supports that or not, and we can parse the data in various ways. What I think has happened is there's a convergence of different interests. There are some people who want Gush restricted because, as I said, they want to see other blue decks have a chance to compete in the metagame, right? And then there's some people who are just sick and tired of the mentor deck, and there may be some overlap between those people, but they're not necessarily the same, and the goals are different. And the reason that it's important to articulate the goal clearly is because the mechanism, the, the intervention by which you solve that problem is different, maybe different depending upon the goal you're pursuing. One of the issues that makes this whole conversation so difficult, and Kevin and I, you and I touched on this offline, is that we tend to talk in binary terms. People say, um, well, that won't do anything, or this will solve the problem, and this won't, right? <laughs> I had a conversation with someone where someone said that. That, And the, pr- the problem with that is that it's usually a matter of degree, and the degree really matters. So you might say, you know, if a, a particular deck is at a certain level, let's say 22%, which is roughly where Gush Mentor is, 21, 22% of the metagame, a certain restriction might actually neuter it entirely, like t- wipe it out of the metagame. Another restriction might take it down 5%. Another restriction might take it down 30%. A combination of restrictions, you can you know, tweak it and tailor it to kind of calibrate the percentage of mentor you want in the metagame. But what often happens is we talk in these sweeping terms where we say, okay, restricting preordain is going to have no effect on that deck. Whereas if we restrict gush, we're going to really dent the deck. But that kind of talk actually elides the um, more subtle and more more nuanced and perhaps more importantly, more 
um, specific ways in which different kinds of restrictions can produce different kinds of results. Um, what I think is going on here is there's a convergence of interest. I do think there's another issue. And since our last podcast, there are two other articulations that I want to just bring to our audience of goals that you could use the ban and restricted list to achieve. One is one that Titus Chalk described, which is a kind of pol a polarization argument, which is that together, although Gush is not a dominant deck in the sense of, it, I mean, look, we talked about the Bizarre Moxon results. The mentor decks were rough, were 20%. And we did a kind of back of the envelope calculation of how many gush, percentage of Gush decks in that environment. I think we said it was about 22, 23%, Kevin, maybe a little more. Yeah, about that. That's not a dominant deck. 20% is far from, I mean, workshops are usually almost, you know, with the exception of the, the Eldrazi period, workshops are always that, about that amount in, right. you know, um, in recent years and vintage. And no one would say we should restrict Misha's workshop. Well, there have been a lot of workshop restrictions. Being 20% of the metagame is, I think, in very few people's minds, uh, a threshold for restriction. Even 25% is usually not. Um, but there is a good point to say, okay, a deck isn't dominating, but a deck and the anti-deck create such a large portion of the metagame that they have functionally become a duopoly. And whether you're talking about antitrust law or magic metagames, <laughs> I think duopolies can be just about as harmful as monopolies. You know, oligopolies are just about as harmful. It's not, not mm -hmm. really competition. So that's a legitimate concern if if that's what you really want to attack. And if you believe that <laughs> if you believe that Gush is propping up workshops to that degree, you know, to the degree that it's overrepresented compared to where it otherwise would have been, there is a legitimate argument there. And one could, if you're kind of stretching this explanation, fit this description or explanation to fit that goal. It's just not clear. The other goal that I heard articulated, which I have, le I think is less legitimate. And by the way, just to be clear, I don't believe that the second goal I, I, I mentioned earlier, which is that Gush represses other blue decks, I don't believe that's a legitimate re restriction to, to restrict something, because a legitimate justification or rationale for restriction. Because within any part of a vintage or a magic metagame, you're going to have sub-subgroupings of decks where one draw engine or one tactic or one strategic objective keeps others out of the metagame. And there's no real principled way to draw distinctions between that. You know, uh, I think that's a very slippery slope, and I don't think you can actually, there's a legitimate way to draw to draw lines there. Um, and we can talk about that later. But the the other objective that I, goal that I heard um, described was that um, it's not the polarization argument, but it was framed as polarization. And it's that, in essence, gush and workshops are so different in terms of how they attack the metagame and their weaknesses, that designing a deck that can attack one means that that deck is usually very unlikely to be able to, to defeat the other. That is to say, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to design a deck that can both attack workshops and gush. And the specific rationale is that workshops incentivize a large mana base, and decks with large mana bases are, have, obviously have virtual card disadvantage against gush decks. So I call it this Sila and Charbdis uh, problem, which is the you know Greek mythological problem of the, you, to avoid one evil, you you fly directly into the other, <laughs> and and I think that is a that is a fair concern, but I don't think it's a legitimate reason to restrict unless you believe that it's such an extreme problem that it really does merit a response. I, I just think that's how magic metagames work. Anyway, I just wanted to present those those goals. I think that. This particular, I think what's really happened here, I've said this before, is you have a convergence of concerns and they decided to take action on the concerns. So the first threshold question is, is there consensus there's a problem? 
then the next question is, what is the problem? I think that the problem they've articulated is exactly what you're reading, which is I think that they're saying there's a stagnation problem. It's interesting. They say that there's a stagnation in the first sentence, but then the second sentence says there seems to be a, a they say the primary issue seems to revolve around the prevalence of free draw spells for the mentor deck that allow it to churn through its library. That articulation of the problem is really striking to me because it puts so much emphasis on the draw spell being free, right? And so they took out the two free draw spells. But does it really make a difference if the draw spells cost mana, if everything else is free, if the mana is free, if you have a ton of artifacts, if um, the counter magic is free because of misstep and force and mind break trap, and you're paying, and, and frankly, the draw spells are very low cost because like delve spells, you they have cost reducers built in. Or like paradoxical outcome, the more mana you have, the freer it becomes. I'm not sure that really makes a difference. If they say that the issue is the generation of tokens, I don't think that restricting gush actually reduces that as a problem. Because as we've said before, um, I think what's going to come out and be birthed out of this metagame is actually going to be superior in token production to what has ex existed with the Gush Mentor deck. Um, I have more to say, but let me just interject and let you allow you to interject. You've covered a, a lot there from parsing their, their statements to predicting the future. I, I want to not talk about predicting the future personally yeah, let's hold at that. the moment. Yeah, yeah let's, that's a better topic for the end of the discussion, but... Uh, when you asked me about my initial impressions and I talked about the book ending of what the problem statement is, I was intending to observe exactly what you just did, which is the very second sentence focusing so much on <laughs> what they call the primary issue yes. seems to undermine the topic sentence and yes. the conclusion, right? Right. Because it, it, because can't be, it can't be the primary issue if your goal is to open up the metagame, right? The fact that one deck has a free spell or two does not directly equate to the primary issue is the metagame hasn't changed. <laughs> you know, that's a that's a false equivalence. So I, I think this supports your conclusion about the convergence uh, notion. There are a lot of things going on here, heavily weighted by community feedback and, and many people saying there is something wrong. There is a lack of consensus, as you and I have observed, and the community itself has documented, uh, pretty well documented, which means taking action and trying to justify it with any kind of mechanical or, or metrical measurements is somewhat foolhardy, right? It was somewhat foolish of Aaron to undertake trying to describe what everyone is upset about yes. and what they're trying to fix and how they're trying to fix it. He could have just said, most people don't like this metagame, so we're making a change and we think these, <laughs> these spells are the dumbest ones. And, you know, And it would have been almost equally as valid to have said just that. And you and I would be analyzing that as... Well, here we are. <laughs> With, you know, we've reached a similar conclusion that we're going to reach upon parsing all of this minutia that is somewhat self-defeating or self-contradictory in places. So I, I, yeah. I don't know. I'll turn it back to you. But well, this whole thing is yeah. is very, very hard to parse because I find it very so, self-contradicting. Well, I, I think I think part of the confusion, as I said before, is that the complexity of this decision is that there are, is that everyone looks at it and they look they're looking at it kind of reading in their understanding of the issue because this description is both brief and also ambiguous and and also unclear and not ambiguous unclear mean the same thing but but it's read, read in its, its totality there are i think multiple readings right each sentence has its own kind of meaning but in its totality it becomes ambiguous 
And so if I am upset with Gush because I want to play Mana Drain decks and I'm sick and tired of Gush dominating blue decks, I read this and I'm happy and it seems to mesh with my worldview. If I am upset with the Gush Mentor deck, I can read this and it meshes with my worldview. If, on the other hand, I'm upset with the vintage metagame, not because I have a problem with Gush Mentor per se or even workshops per se, but because I'm sick and tired of being bored with the current metagame, I can read this and it meshes with my worldview, right? So I think there's a there's an issue here, which is that you have a convergence of, of different people having different concerns, all having, and, and, and really they're trying to speak to all these concerns with almost double talk. On the one hand, it's like, like we're talking about stagnation. On the other hand, we're talking about reducing the prevalence of mentor, which would suggest a dominance argument. And then on the, yet the third hand, if you had one, they're talking about reducing the prevalence of workshops, which seems to be a nod towards people who are in the fourth sentence who are concerned about the prevalence of workshops, right? So it's like um, trying to please everyone, maybe pleasing most people, but in a way that's that's really unclear about the core underlying concern. They never come out and say, the Monastery Mentor deck is overperforming in the vintage metagame. And you know, which I think actually, even though this, the most recent data doesn't really support a dominance theory, you could say, you could phrase it this way, you could say, Monastery Mentor's longevity and consistently high performance in vintage tournaments, even though it's not winning tournaments or even putting in the top four, it's consistently performing well, combined with its effect in terms of propping up the workshop decks, which are performing just as well, if not better, essentially reduces the diversity in the metagame. And you have a kind of oligopoly in the format. And we believe this restriction will will reduce the prevalence of a very prominent, if not dominant, deck and its primary predator. But that's not what they said. Instead, and I think the problem is because of the tailoring issue. The decision they made to restrict Gush and Probe doesn't really make sense <laughs> from the perspective of if, if the problem is a stagnation or, you know, Gush and Workshops battling, I'm not sure that... that that um, the restriction they made is is the most tailored restriction. I think, um, I'm not sure it's really defensible. And I think the greatest weakness in this explanation is not even in the, in the second sentence, although it's the strangest one, but it's the belief articulated in the third sentence. That he, he says, we believe by removing these free draw spells, we will significantly weaken monastery mentor-based strategies. That is a bold... Kevin, You are. I can see you're squinting <laughs> and you're almost wincing, I would say. Uh, that's a bold prediction, a bold prediction. And they also it's, say... Yeah. It's a bold prediction that's immediately undermined by the next sentence. <laughs> Which is that by moving away from this, it will lessen the impact of workshops. And, the, and what you're specifically saying is that you think that these are... T- and and Kai, Kai Buddha actually pointed this out. And, and I'll, I'll read his, his t- tweet in a bit. But what you're essentially saying is you're taking out the two cards that workshop is functionally strongest against (laughs) right right that's what you're saying Uh, well yes but that's what they're saying as well in in the penultimate sentence is the move away from these free spells will lessen the impact of workshops various sphere resistance effects they're pointing out that you're saying that that's a contradictory logic because on the one hand you're saying that, that the two cards that when built around a mentor deck are really weakest against workshops are the free draw spells because probe and gush are the hardest to play, in a sense, um, and because spheres make make them cost mana, and and therefore you're saying we want to re- reduce the presence of workshops. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, by taking out the, the cards they're strongest against. Is that what you're saying? What I'm pointing out is the contradictory goals and 
predictions um, <clears throat> flatly stated by these two sentences. We believe dot 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 weaken monastery mentor based strategies. The next <laughs> sentence, hopefully dot 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 lessen the impact of workshop spheres. So right. which is it? Are you making mentor worse or are you making it better? That's that's the problem with this whole description is they're yes. all over the road. They're just trying to I don't even know why the second to last sentence is in here. So you've been setting up how the problem is the primary issue dot 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 free draw spells. We believe dot 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 weaken monastery mentor based strategies. And oh by the way, the spheres aren't going to be as good either. Right. So, right. I think I think it, they don't it, they don't know what's going to happen here. They're it, just responding to people being upset by something by getting rid of the card that people like the least. It it does appear to have a contradictory logic that, to say on the one hand we're we're hoping to reduce mentor, but then we also are hoping to reduce shops. So it raises the question, well what's replacing them, right? I mean it, that on the surface it just doesn't make sense. I think the most generous reading of what they're saying is that we hope that we believe, in terms of the, the theory they have, the model of the metagame, is they think that Gush is propping up shops. The Gush mentor is propping up shops. And so if, if you do something about the Gush decks by taking out Gush, you will simultaneously reduce the, the presence of, of shops in the metagame. But the, the critical logical flaw is, is that replaced with what? It's just as likely that if you reduce the, the um, presence of shops that that space will be filled by new mentor decks, right? <laughs> I think, owing back to my initial comment about the success measure for this, I think one possible reading of this is they want to turn the duopoly that you described into a three-deck metagame. They want to take 5% from mentor and 5% from shops and move it into drain decks and then have like a 15-15-15 kind of metagame that hopefully people will like more. Yeah, that... When they say they believe it, and look, I believe that this was probably a tough decision for DCI. And there's a lot of people in there who vote on this, and I, I suspect that there this was not a unanimous decision. There may have been unanimity on the need to do something, but probably lack of consensus on what to do. And you're nodding. nodding, nodding so. Mirroring the community, of course. Yes, mirroring the community. <clears throat> so let, let's just I, turn to... I want to add something. Uh Greg Fenton on Facebook pointed out something which I found very humorous. So the topic sentence is, we have restricted Gush and Gitaxian Probe. You do a word count on the um, the paragraph here for the word Probe, and you get one. <laughs> for the word Gush, you get zero. For the word Mentor, you get four. And Greg's yes, point, are yes. we sure we restricted the right card? Yes. I, I mean, look. Obviously, I, they don't want the Mentor deck to disappear. That's their rationale, I think. Well, or maybe they didn't. Ser- maybe they just thought that maybe honestly, the the question of whether to restrict mentor was not seriously discussed by the DCI. Maybe it didn't get much of a hearing. Um, you know, maybe it really wasn't presented as, as an option or whatever. I, I, I find I find that hard to believe so, in the context of how much importance they well, placed on community feedback. Ex- no, there's no way. That's there's why no way I, they listened to the community and didn't hear someone, aka dozens of people, saying you should probably restrict mentor. I, I disagree. I think that's actually. I think that. So we both agree that the community feedback is what probably drove this decision. I think to a large kind, degree. Yeah, I think. I think the ba- Well, we said this was a litmus test. I think you agree with that. This decision was a litmus test for whether you're looking really. Your decision is being driven by data, or whether it's really driven by community feedback. And let's just get it out of the way now. Aaron Forsyth later on said on Twitter today, the catalyst for ban and restrictive change changes to any format 
is player feedback. Parenthetically, then we go to data, design, theory, and testing. So thank you all for feedback. I think what made me believe that this was going to happen, I posted on Twitter, I thought Gush was going to get it. What made me believe was going to, this was going to happen is when a set critical mass of voices, particularly on the VSL, at the end of the season, started lining up in behalf of Gush. I think in particular, it wasn't just Rich Shea, but it was when Randy said it and then Eric said it. I think that, and, and on the VSL, there was no discussion about mentor instead of Gush, really. I, at least none that I recall. It was almost entirely framed as to whether Gush should get restricted or not, and um, so that's uh, that is certainly a, a reasonable position. It's also really frustrating <laughs> I know. because I, I there's know. no way that that three to four people on the VSL should have that much weight in well, this policy. I I think that there were a lot of people who were upset with the or, uh, the situation, right? And it wasn't until I think late, too late in the game that probably the the emphasis shifted to to mentor. So let's let's do something real quick. Let's talk about the prediction, then let's talk about the last major poll, and then I want to talk about the Waterbury results, and we can do some other discussion around this, Kevin. But let's let's first, and we'll get to probe too. So, what do you think happens now? I think we lose a, a single-digit amount of uh, mentor decks. I think we lose almost all of the young pyromancer decks. They're gone. Be- because probe is, is more important to that archetype, and I think gush is slightly more important to that archetype too. And many of them were Grixis banking on the interaction of probe and therapy, which means the therapy engine goes. So I, I just think young pyromancer is out, uh, well, lost, thrown out with the bathwater here. This- so I think we, we lose that 5 or 7% of Gush decks, and then we lose another 3 to 5% of Mentor decks as they find different tools and different builds. I think there's an uptick in Paradoxical Outcome. So I think the overall Gush percentage does drop by 5 to 7%, but the you, overall you Mentor the decks, percentage... the decks that would have used Gush? Gush is gone. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. <laughs> the former Gush decks, which are still going to look largely the same, so I'm still calling them the Gush decks, but... Uh, those would-be gush decks are going to lose overall percentage, but the portion of mentor in the metagame is actually going to be about the about the same as people migrate away from pyromancer. Some people would just move to mentors, or more people will adopt paradoxical outcome or thirst and or other draw engines. Because this restriction doesn't change the fact that mentor is still the best win condition. Exactly. That's I think. What I love about this announcement is that they have put their cards on the table. They put their money on. They they bet on something happening, and I I think if there's a silver lining for me, as unhappy as I am with this particular restriction, the silver lining is that I have a significant amount of faith that a they're going to be proven wrong in their belief. That b a lot of people are going to well, see that. Sorry. I need to interrupt you and ask which belief. The specific belief that this restriction will significantly diminish the presence of Mentor. There's only three things that can happen. One, Mentor stay the same. Mentor declines, or there's an increase in Mentor. Now, if I had said, you know, most people, I had a conversation with Randy and a lot of some other people, the idea that Mentor increases after this is very counterintuitive, but I think it's actually very possible. We covered this to some degree in our last podcast, and I'll explain how. It is certainly likely, however, that Mentor will decline a bit. It's also possible that it stays around the same. Around the same. But here's the thing. 
I actually think that th what I think is going to happen is that this decision is going to reveal over an I don't think it's going to take that long. I think it's going to take mm, six to 12 weeks at most that the real problem was mentor, not gush. And it's going to be revealed when, in very short order, the best mentor deck emerges. The problem with mentor is that mentor is by far the best win condition in the format. It's just the best. And as a strategic objective, it synergizes so well with big mana blue decks that want to play lots of artifacts, like and Sensei's Divining Top, and all the good stuff that already exists, all the Delve spells and everything else. So it's not going to take very long for the best mentor deck to emerge and then consolidate. It may even happen this weekend at the Power 9, uh, Power Nine event online. I would not at all be surprised, Kevin, if Ventor wins the tournament this weekend. No, I won't. For, for two reasons. One, because it's still very, very, very good. Three reasons. It's still very, very. It's still the best win condition in the format. Two, now that Gush is gone, it's going to be better against Workshop decks because they'll be playing more mana, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Mentor is going to be in decks that'll be better against Workshop decks going forward. Period. And three, because it's going to be underestimated in the short term. So it's going to be, it has everything going for it to, to do well, right? Yeah, I think basically I, I agree with you. I won't be surprised if Mentor is half the top eight and wins the power nine. Yeah. Um, and I think that people who are hoping that Mentor was the, <clears throat> you described a, a number of different types of positions a couple of minutes back. Of those people who just didn't like the Mentor decks, I think those people are are in for, in for a surprise. A, a big disappointment. <laughs> a yeah. big disappointment because I don't think mentor goes anywhere. And I would put the I don't know how to phrase this statement, but I would say there's even odds in terms of mentor, the number of monastery mentors appearing in vintage top eights going down as there is going up. <laughs> right? I think the median impact of the number of monastery mentors in vintage is actually Maybe. flat. Maybe the, even if that's the case, that is it flatly contradicts their prediction and undermines well, the rationale because they say we believe it significantly declines, right? That's what they said. Well, so <laughs> significantly weakened yeah. monastery mentor-based yeah. strategies. Yes, I think there's a. I, I'm I'm with you. I have a high degree of confidence. I wouldn't say you can't say 100. percent I have a high degree of confidence that that goal will not be met. Yes, and if if that's true then where the vintage metagame is going to end up is it's going to end up in a place where Mentor continues to be a problem. The people who wanted to see a, uh, an evolution in the metagame are going to be disappointed. The people who are concerned about the Gush Mentor deck are going to be disappointed. And the people who wanted to see Mana Drain decks open up are going to be disappointed. All three groups of people are going to be disappointed. <laughs> Ex people, except people who just didn't want to see Gush put on the stack as much. Those people are still yes. going to be reasonably happy. That's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, so if you're, yeah, if you're, well, if your well, motivation here was I simply don't want as much gush in vintage, you got it. There it is. There, there you go. Same for Gataxian Pro. But, but I don't, I don't think it's people who just objected to gush as a card. People objected gush for a reason. They objected to gush because most of the people who just hated gush, they were either a just sick of gush because it had been around for a long time, or they just wanted to see other blue draw. They wanted to play other blue decks. Right? That's not an unreasonable reason for some, a person to want something to be restricted. I think it's an unreasonable reason for the DCI to restrict, <laughs> but I think, that, <laughs> I think that that's not a reasonable thing for an average pl a random player to want. I think those sure. people are going to be disappointed because we're not going to see thirst decks coming. You know, I don't think we're going to see mana drain decks coming out of the woodwork. 
I don't even think we're going to see Thirst decks coming out of the Wolf Relic. I think those decks are not coming back in this as long as Monastery Mentors are around. So let me let me point something out. Now. We, we're both on the same page. Well, actually, one other thing. So in terms of the specific breakdown of the metagame, here's how Mentor decks might actually increase. So let's assume that that the gush you know the gush decks are virtually wiped out, um, and that as a result the space that gush occupies is now overtaken by other blue decks or restricted list blue decks. Let's further assume that Workshop and Eldrazi decks decline, let's say from a total of the metagame of like 30% to something like 17, 18, 20%. Right? The space that's just left that's, that that opens can be taken up by more blue decks. So in essence, workshops put a kind of ceiling on the presence of gush decks in the metagame, in a sense. So, so in, in some ways, blue decks can become larger. I think Andy Probasco actually articulated this probably one of the best ways. He posted on a, a while ago, a couple weeks ago, he posted this. He thinks that restriction of gush would take us from metagame, metagame that looks like this. 30% Mentor, 30% Shop, 10% Aldrazi, 10% Control, 10% Oath, 10% Dredge. Now his numbers may be off, but just listen to the gist. To something like this. 60% Big Blue, 15% Shop, 15% Anti-Blue Combo, and 10% Dredge. So if you see what he's done there, he basically says that a metagame that has Gush and shop, gush in it essentially bumps up Shops and has puts a ceiling on the percentage of Blue decks that is something like, you know, no more than, like, roughly 15, 50% of the metagame. Whereas if you restrict Gush, blue becomes like 60% of the metagame. So one of the ways that Mentor could actually become a larger part of the metagame is if it rapidly colonizes the inrush of new blue decks. That is, if more blue decks, if, if you take the total vintage metagame and blue becomes a larger part of the pie, then Mentor, by virtue of being the best win condition in blue decks can become a larger part of the vintage metagame after the restriction. And that's what I think is a very good chance of happening. So not only do I not think it's not going to diminish, I think there's a, just as good of a chance that it increases. And ironically, because their uh, description here is so all over the place, that does potentially satisfy one of the stated goals or expectations, which is, which is this very shops. last phrase, <laughs> which is this very last phrase of opening up the metagame. There's one potential reading where if there are suddenly four different mentor decks instead of yeah. two or three, you know, there's one reading yeah. of that that says, oh, well, that was kind of a success, right? Now there's a mentor deck with drains, and now there's a mentor deck with this card, and <laughs> you know, four or five different archetypes instead of the two slash three we have now. That's that's true, but I think people will find that to be quite illusory. If the, if the <laughs> right, win that condition wouldn't be very satisfying for the, most. If the win condition is mentor, and it plays out the same way by generating a ton of tokens, you know, uh, and in fact, one of the things I've been saying is that, that Gush actually may have cabined Mentor. I, I, I feel very, the reason I'm so calm about this is because I feel that everything I predicted is going to be validated. I think that you're going to see faster Mentors, that is, you're going to see, in big blue decks, Mentors are going to come out more quickly than they did in Gush decks. Gush deck is fundamentally slow. Gush kicks in on turn three at the earliest, and these Mentors are going to come down faster they're going to generate monk tokens faster, and they're going to be more aggressive and brutal. I think we've already predicted all this in previous podcasts, but I don't think there are going to be four mentor decks. I think there's going to be two, and the best one is going to be determined very quickly. I think the the one mentor deck is going to be you just take the, all the restricted blue draw spells like Gush and the Delve spells, and you put them all in one deck with cards like Jace, Vern's Prodigy, and so on. And the other is just going to be one that uses whatever the other better best draw engine is. Probably Paradoxical Outcome. 
combined with all those cards as well. And I think it's going to be very fast. I think it's going to emerge quickly and it's going to consolidate fast because Magic Online just has that effect. So, Yeah, and um, I'd just like to make a, a brief reference to the fact that you and I played Mentor this past vintage champs yes paradox and, and our list <laughs> and our list had zero gush in it yes. and there's a reason for that it's because you and i identified exactly what you're talking mentor about mentor is the in best a room full of mentor you want to mentor bigger and faster and harder than your opponents do. <laughs> harder yeah. than you want to you want to met you want you want to mentor i mean the gush decks really don't mentor that hard i mean really they don't like i look at a mentor board a gush mentor board and it might have like at most like 10 tokens when we play yeah. when we play mentor we have like 20 tokens and like yeah. and like 20 prowess. I mean, it's and I, <laughs> at Vintage Champs in that event, I had two turn one kills yes. with a mentor deck. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I that, had, that's something that Gush does not facilitate. Not at all. I think so. People who are yeah. So what this is all coming around to is that the people who are unhappy about Mentor specifically and its presence in the metagame don't uh, don't get your hopes up in terms of the well, outcome here. I would we, say. We, we said this. We said this in the last podcast too. But if you look at the eighth place deck from Eternal Weekend Europe, it was a mentor deck that had one gush in it, and basically was it yeah. to- already top eighted. So I mean, like, you know, what what does that even do? Um, I would encourage people for a little bit of historical perspective to take an interesting exercise. Go back and look at the top eight from 2014, the year that Mark Taco won with Oath, but defeating Delver in the finals. That top eight had. Delver decks piloted by Ryan Glacken and, excuse me, I'm looking through the list now, Christian Griffin, as well as Dario Moreno, who got second, and Ryan Eberhardt. Four different Delver decks in that top right. eight. Now, that was an unrestricted uh, treasure cruise at that right. time. Right, treasure cruise was in all of them. Take a look at those lists and take a look at the total count of these uh, four cards. Preordain, Gitaxian Probe, Treasure Cruise, and Gush. All those cards were unrestricted in that event. No one played a full complement of all of them. Not even close, in fact. Ryan Eberhardt was the closest. He had four of Preordain, Probe, and Cruise, but he only had two Gush. Two Gush, yeah. Yeah. If you look through these lists, the second place list, Dario Moreno, who who, who lost in the finals, he had four Preordains, but he only had three Cruise, zero Probes, and only three Gush, right? Look at Ryan Glacken's list. Yes. Two preordains, three cruises, and three gr- three gush with zero probes. So in a in a format where we could play sixteen of this effect, basically people were maxing out at. <laughs> I mean, Ryan had the most, but most people were maxing out at a four, three, two, two kind like of 11. breakdown. Yeah, yeah, playing about half of what you could of this effect. And I'm not saying that we're going to return to these decks because Young Pyromancer has issues, of course. But my point yeah. is simply that. <laughs> We have learned a lot from these these times. Mentor has changed a lot in terms of the value of card draw and cantrips. And there there's just so much material, even with a restricted gush and preordain, that you can't keep the strategy down. I think that if they had just hit Mentor, that the Pyromancer is such a weak substitute, especially in a ballista metagame, that Mentor would not have been nearly as, as prevalent. So here's what here's what Kai right. Buddha Kai Buddha said in response to Randy congratulating the uh, DCI. He says, what is this supposed to accomplish? <laughs> and Kai says, the problem with this is that the restricted cards are great against other mentor blue decks. <clears throat> Meaning, I think what he's saying is the, the cards they just restricted. You do not want these cards in your deck against decks that are supposed to keep mentor in check, mainly the Shops Eldrazi. 
In other words, he's saying that he's pointing out that both Gush and Probe are best against the blue decks and weakest against shops. But he says the mentor decks are forced to play these because they are so strong in the mirror. Now no one has access access to these, meaning mentor will now play one to two more lands and more real cards. Um, he says lightning bolt, young pyromancer, more planeswalkers, cards that are actually good against the decks that hold the blue cantrip decks in, in check. Maybe I'm wrong, but there's a decent chance this accomplishes the opposite of what's intended to weaken mentor against the field. And he sim- said a very similar thing on on Twitter, which I want to pull it up. Uh, and I want I want to draw attention that he used the word opposite there. I want to parse that after you read your other example. Yeah, uh, he said on Twitter this morning. He said it was more explicit. He said vintage changes. These restrictions will likely make Mentor better overall. Restricted cards are good in the mirror, bad against anti. Um, so when Kai uses the word opposite there, he says this might have the opposite of the intended effect. He is clearly doing what you said at the at the top of this episode or this discussion which was he's bringing his own interpretation of the rationale given to bear because he clearly believes that the effect was to he's focusing on the whole um weaken monastery mentor based right, strategies statement yes. right but he's in agreement with the sentence thereafter which right. says the free spells are worse and this will lessen the impact of spheres right. so he is reinforcing the, the contradictory nature here <laughs> And, and he's putting a lot of emphasis on this statement about weakening monastery mentor-based strategies. So, it's it's going to be funny. This is this this description and the resulting metagame are going to be a little bit like a Rorschach test, everyone's as you alluded to earlier. Yeah, read their yeah. own. Everyone's going to read the result differently <laughs> and say, "Oh, well, this clearly means they were right, or this clearly <laughs> means they were wrong," because you can read their description so many different ways. So, um, Rachel Agnes then just said she doesn't see how these restrictions can make mentor stronger and then Luis Scott Vargas responded with I think perhaps the best framing or phrasing yet he says there's a reasonable chance that Kai is right gush and probe suck against shops and why or why mentor was the best in blue versus blue so the next version of mentor should be better against shops this opens the door for non-mentor blue decks though at least different draw engines in mentor decks which to me, see, I don't agree with that last statement at all. I I don't agree. I don't agree with the first clause of it, but I do agree with the second in the short run. <laughs> I think in the long run, it's going to just be consolidated into one or two mentor decks. I think what's important though about what Luisa says, Luisa is actually saying he thinks Kai, and by extension, I am right that there's a chance that we're just going to see more mentor. If that's right, if it's right, then. Unless you really, really just wanted to see Gush out. But if your goal was to deal with Gush Mentor, then they made the wrong decision. And I want to point to a poll now. I think the real message here is that we need to get LSV and Kai back in the VSL. (laughs) So here's here's, uh, what... We we kicked out the wrong members here (laughs) from from a policy standpoint. Here's what Brian... Brian Kelly posted a poll on April 11th which unfortunately is probably after the DC already made this decision. Just a general inquiry. Should the next ban and restricted list update include changes to vintage? And if so, which cards status should change? There are a bunch of options he gave. In fact, like 20 options. And the way Facebook, this is in the Facebook vintage group. The way Facebook works is the most popular options migrate to the top. So you can't really tell how he sequenced these, but my guess is he did it in a reasonable way. So let me just tell you the number of people who voted on some of these options. 137 people voted for yes, there should be a change. 50 people voted for no. So if we assume that's the universe, you can vote on multiple things, that's the universe of people, that is 187 uh, 187 people voted. And if you're doing the math, that means the vast majority wanted a change. That is, um, 
73% wanted something to change. Now, um, among the 73% who wanted a change, or on the total 187, what did people want changed? Kevin, have you seen these results? I have, but I don't have the numbers in front of me, yes. Here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing. 114 people voted for Monastery Mentor. That is, if you do the math, 114 out of 187 is 61%. Well, it's, yeah, and it's it's a huge portion of the people who thought something should be done, too. Right, exactly. It's an even larger portion of that. But 61% of the overall people. Guess how many, what percentage of people said, thought Gus should be restricted? Half. Way lower. <laughs> 67 percent. 67. Not 67 percent. 67. Meaning that out of 187. Out of 187, which is exact, is is 36 <laughs> percent. So there were almost twice as many people who wanted Mentor as Gush. And then wh- the next most popular card was Gitaxian Probe, which is 40. 40 people, <laughs> which was 40 out of 187 is um, yeah. 21 percent. So I think. I, Anyway, I just wanted to point out that this is the most, the largest poll that we've had, right? And the people who voted in here, it was very clear that there was a consensus around mentor, not gush. That's all I wanted to point out. Yeah. I I feel like we should try and bring this home. I mean, we've talked about a lot of things here, but one of the things that we haven't specifically stated in this episode, which we do all the time in our other discussions, and I want to reiterate here, is that, Steve, you and I share an overarching belief in banned restricted policy that one of the goals of Vintage is to have a small or as small as possible or as reasonable uh, restricted list. Yes. And the, so a lot of people might say, well, if this results in mentor just getting restricted next time anyway, what's the big deal? The big deal is the list being overly large. And it, and if you, if you make a mistake, like we're describing this thing as potentially a mistake from a, from a narrow tailoring, you know, design goal standpoint, if you make a mistake like this, it, it's hard to undo exactly. it. Exactly. It leads to more, in other words, it leads to more more restrictions down the line. And that's the problem. I think that's actually the problem with, with the decision not to restrict Gollum and to start with Chalice, is that if they had just restricted Gollum, I'm not sure Chalice would have ever needed it. I, I, there, so there are three very minor sub-issues I just want to hit in quick succession. That You just hit the next one, which is that we are now set firmly on a trajectory where we're going to have more restrictions. It's very difficult to imagine that six to nine months from now, people are going to be happy with the mentor-dominated vintage format. Mentor is going to be restricted. It's just a matter of time. Then the question is, what's next? Like, how does restricting Gush put us on a path? Is it going to be paradoxical outcome down the road, other cards? That's one one point. The flip side of it is, you know, I think this we're in this larger era of, of more restrictions rather than less. And part of it is not just the path we're on, but the mode in which this path has been set. And I think Ryan Eberhardt captured it with his tweet today. He said, not particularly happy with the narrative for vintage restrictions for the past two years is complain and you shall receive. And then in parens, he says, regardless of whether I think individual restrictions were correct or incorrect. That is, we went through a period of essentially stability, five years of very few, no restrictions. And then we hit the cons of Tarkir. We got a pair of the Delve restrictions, and then it's been a kind of snowball ever since. And part of it is, I think, these restrictions, these series of restrictions have emboldened people to think. Now, there's two ways of interpreting it. One is that <laughs> that vintage has fundamentally changed, that with Magic Online, there's more attention, and therefore, there needs to be more metagame regulation. That's one interpretation. The other is that there's a more, that um, rather there's just a more vocal contingent that's that's really lobbying more strongly for, for change. And I think that's where we are. I think it's 
probably a combination of both, but I don't think it's I don't think there's anything that's fundamentally changed in vis-a-vis ban and restricted list policy. That is, I don't think what I would say is that if Magic Online had existed in the five years where there were four and a half years there was no restrictions, I think it's very possible there would have been no restrictions during that period either. That is to say, in terms of the data, I don't think there would have been a tremendous metagame difference that would have driven the data that would support restrictions. I think it's hard to say. I think you might be right. But I would also like to draw attention to the Trinisphere restriction, which smacks of this same kind of community feedback driving policy. Because as you and I have alluded to a number of times before, Trinisphere didn't have the numbers to support its, uh, you know, just at face value, didn't have the numbers to support restriction at the time. But it wasn't a numbers-based restriction. It was, anyway, I think think what is clear is that that they are now looking for a consensus in the community there's a problem. The question and where they're getting tripped up is what to do about that problem. And I think that's the issue, is that if they make the wrong decision based upon what vocal people want, then you end up with more restrictions in the long run. I would like them to see unrestrict. I would like them to unrestrict some cards now. I think they need to unrestrict cards. We've just gone through a cycle of two years of restrictions. There are a number of cards that can potentially come off, like Windfall or Yawgmoth's Bargain. Um, and... Anyway, I, I would like them to be a little bit more experimental with that, to send the message that we're not just restricting cards, that we're trying to keep this thing reasonably small, right? But that they seem to have lost sight of that. And in addition to that, owing to what I brought up about the size of the list, also the notion that they restricted two cards at once smacks uh, of I, the, the bulk restriction of, yeah, of years past. Yeah, one thing that I've observed is every single time in vintage history, every single time without exception, I think maybe there's one, there's one exception, sorry, one exception in the entire history of the format that they've ever restricted more than one card. They've later unrestricted at least one of those cards, which suggests that when you do two restrictions to target the same problem, you have the problem of over-inclusiveness. That is, you're, 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 you know, it's like, you know, you're, you're trying to get rid of a pest. You can set a trap and you can gas it and you can poison it. You only need one to kill the, the pest. You don't need both. <laughs> and it becomes overkill. Uh, and later on, one of those, it can be safe. In this case, um, it's going to be pretty hard to get Gush unrestricted. But I do think that if Mentor is eventually restricted, there'll be some... What I'm most concerned about is that when Mentor does get restricted, and I say, I told you so, there's going to be some people who say, yeah, but I still don't want Gush unrestricted. <laughs> even though it should never have been restricted in the first place. Um, but I think that day will come and then a lot of people will see it. And I also think that when the metagame doesn't open up in the way that people hope, hoped, um, eventually, and also after some time, after a few years of Gush not existing, there will be a large contingent of people who will someday say, you know, I'd like to play with Gush again, you know? <laughs> so maybe, maybe someday. Um, but yeah. but I think I think that part of what we're on now is a, Unfortunately, we're on a little bit of a, a roller coaster. We're going to see some other things axed. It's just, I think, inevitable. Um, and that, that's kind of just the, the moment we're in. Yeah. Well, and we'll be right here with it to cover all of those results. Steve, do we have to keep well, talking about this well, or can we move the, on? Well, there was only one last thing I wanted to point out, which is we didn't, all right. you know, which was Cataxian Pro. You know, just very quickly, we um, said in, our last, in one of our podcasts, the reason I wouldn't have restricted Probe is because I like what it does with Cabal Therapy. I like what it does with um, the, the DPS decks and stuff like that. I think it would have been better just to restrict one card, you know, and not and not both. Yeah. Um, well, one reading of this situation is this ch- this causes Mentor decks to change a little bit. You know, shift, perhaps, is the best way to put it. But this straight up bans Grixis Pyromancer from the format. Yep. All those which is 
which is one of those things you talked about about uh, being over having an overly large uh, scope when you do multiple restrictions. Kevin, I don't know if you've, you, I'm sure you've been seeing this meme going around, but a number of Magic players have been posting their favorite Magic card by year, following this. Favorite. Did you did you not see mine? I think I did. Yeah. Okay. You had uh, Chains of Mephistopheles C1994. See every subsequent year. Uh, and it's, it follows this meme of people putting together their favorite movie lists by year. I posted mine, and I put some real thought into it. And one of the things that I really – I actually ended up putting Cabal Therapy on my list. And one of the things that I noticed is that every – most of the cards that I put on my list are cards that are really decision-intensive, like Gifts Ungiven, Factor Fiction, Doomsday, Cabal Therapy. All those cards, what I love about them is they give you so many options to make decisions. Even Gush, which lands do I tap? Which lands do I return? When do I play it? Therapy, you know, what do you name? Uh, you know, uh, which card, uh, wh- how do you sequence it? What Do I flash it back now or later? Um, you know, I, I just love how it interacts with all these, you know, Gitaxian Probe and, and these token strategies, and you can also use it in combo, and you can also use it in, in a dredge. So um, anyway, that's it's an amazing card. I think uh, at mm. one point, Mike Flores might have called it one of the most skill-intensive cards in Magic because it, it's bluffs, tells, reads, metagame right. knowledge, you know, all of that all right. the good stuff. It, it is fantastic for all those reasons and more. I agree. Well, that's that's what I had to say about that. I'm, I'm certainly disappointed, but I have tremendous faith that uh, in time, it, people, the metagame will prove that it was Mentor the problem, not Gush. I'm not saying that at that point we'll actually go back and fix what happened, but... Um, I believe that my prediction will be validated. Well, as I said a moment ago, we will be following these results uh, announcement by announcement on this show. So this is not the end of the topic. This is just another signpost along the road. Kevin, when you woke up this morning, how surprised were you this decision? Um, a little surprised. I did not share your expectation that Gush was going to get the axe, and I especially did not expect to see two cards go at once. So I would say I was pretty surprised. And how do you feel about it? Like, are you sad or disappointed, frustrated? You said frustrated yeah, I'm, already. I'm disappointed because, well, I don't think it was necessary, but I also don't like the precedent that it sets from a policy standpoint. I feel like we're on weak footing when it comes to justifying this decision, and I feel like it sets up, it sets us up for a, a bit of mis- future mistakes, right? Which we're going to talk about. I just... Yeah. I feel like we're on weak footing here is is a, a simple analogy. Fair enough. So, Kevin, just as a kind of coda to our <laughs> ban and restricted list discussion, the largest, one of the largest uh, marquee vintage tournaments of the year occurred this past weekend. I would have loved to have gone, but I couldn't make it. Um, had other commitments. But 115 players competed in the Waterbury. The Mana Drain opened 18. <laughs> Always a good time mm-hmm. by Ray Robillard, who we've interviewed on, on our show in the past. And the tournament breakdown uh, was... This is really interesting, Kevin, for a paper event in the Northeast. Gush was 21.7% of the metagame at 25 decks. Shops was 27 decks at 23.5% of the metagame. Eldrazi was 6.1% of the metagame. 
Paradoxical Outcome was 10% of the 10.4% wow. of the metagame with 12 decks. Oath was 8 decks, 7% of the metagame. Dredge, 6.1% of the metagame. Um, Null Rods, 7% of the metagame. Other blue decks, 9.6%, you know, 10% of the metagame. And other, 8.7%. And he has a whole description on how he did classifications. Um, basically, I won't read it, but you can read it if, if you if you want. Um, he says, yeah, I won't read it, but it's it, it's pretty intuitive, I think. So the, the um, top eight deck lists were... I'll just read them one through eight. Uh, first and second place decks were Ravager Shops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Win the tournament. Third place was Unmasked Dredge. Fourth was Paradoxical Storm. Fifth was another Rabbit, uh, another Shops deck, Raffarino playing, they call it Blitzkrieg Shops, but it looks like Foundry mm -hmm. Shops to me. Uh, sixth was Powered Colorless Eldrazi. And then seventh and eighth place was Jeskai Mentor. <laughs> <laughs> the two Gush decks in the top eight were seventh and eighth place. So, I mean, this is very, very similar, I think, to what we saw at Eternal Weekend Europe, yeah. right? I mean, G Gush decks almost exactly at the same level. Um, Shops is roughly the same level. Uh, two full-blown Gush decks in the top eight, which is essentially the same as what we saw at Eternal Weekend Europe. It just... I think reinforces my sadness at the decided decision to restrict here because um, this is just not justified by data. Yeah. So. I mean, the, the one thing I would say that is somewhat justified is that that's become pretty predictable, right? So, just right. These results, you and I could yeah. have pegged this top eight. We would have predicted... We would have predicted three workshops. We would have predicted three, maybe Gush, and then two <laughs> other decks <laughs> among, you know, Dredge, Oath, and Storm, Right. Or Eldrazi. I think we, we I would have we would have I been plus or minus one be, deck on this whole thing if we had predicted right. it. I think I might be wrong, but I think the ninth and tenth place decks were also oh, shop decks. And just just by if you care about this sort of stat, and I know it's, I I don't actually think it's the best stat, and I I maybe spend a second talking about it. But the win the win percentage against the field, the gush win percentage against the field was forty six point eight percent, and the shop. The shop percent win percentage against the field was 63.5%. Now, one of the one of the problems or critic criticisms of using win percentage against the field is that you have different skill levels playing decks, and in essence, the larger repre larger representation of an archetype you have in the field, the, the more likely it is to gravitate towards the mean, right? Because you're going to have a distribution across the field. Now, that's probably true, and that causes gush decks to be underestimated. But shops were the largest part of the field, and they had six. They had by far the biggest win percentage at sixty-four percent. So, you know, it's just <laughs> anyway. I, yeah. I think th there's, there's a that. lot to be said about that notion of how you interpret win percentages, but a lot of it ends up speculating about what a metagame would look like if everyone was of equal skill, and that is a very right. interesting yes. thought experiment and possibly instructive for understanding a system, and also of little use, right? Because we don't play in that world. Yeah. So you can't make no. policy based on a hypothetical world that will never exist. You have to make policy based on the world we live in and the what actual exists. results that we yeah. observe. Because just because you think that Gush should be performing 10 or 15% better than it is because, because you think the average player is not maximizing the deck, perhaps, uh, doesn't matter, right? Because we have to live in the world of the people we have well, and the decks we play. Well, there may be a way of controlling that. Like, let's say, you know, it might it'd be interesting, and this is maybe a topic for another <laughs> podcast, but I have put some thought into metrics for how to measure mm -hmm. performance. 
And, you know, there's a lot of, we've gotten some criticism and fair comments on, well, we're overly focused on top eights. What about the overall mm-hmm. metagame? Now, the problem with the overall metagame is the overall metagame is not a performance yep. measure. The overall metagame tells you actually zero about performance. You can know, unless the metagame is like 99% one deck, you know nothing about performance. Because you can, you can know that 50% of the field was a deck, but you can't, you can't know just by looking at the metagame whether there were any copies of that deck in the top eight or whether any of them even you know won a game against the right. other non So you have matches. to take you, you have to take anything. the intersection of the multiple metrics in order to get knowledge. Right. Exactly, exactly. I, and and the simplest performance measure is just looking at top eights. You can uh, what I do think though is if you look at the metagame it creates context. It tells you something about it. And there's actually someone on the Mandarin last year created an interesting formula where you take in essence the percentage of you can basically in other words look at over or under performance relative to proportion in oh, the sure. field. And he actually created a, a mathematical formula for that that's pretty interesting that, I, to my knowledge, no one has used. But one other approach that might be apples to apples is let's say you, you are concerned about outliers. You're concerned about really poorly skilled people playing a deck and dragging down its average. Well, one way to control for that is just say, compare the top third or top quarter of performers with a deck with the top quarter performers of another deck. That gets you a more direct comparison. Um, but then you'd have to have more granular, detailed um, data to do that. But that's one approach possibility. I don't know if that actually does much, though. I don't know if that really tells you much. The other thing is that the other criticism that sometimes people have is that metagames shift from tournament to tournament. So if you're looking at the January to February to March to April Magic Online Power Night event, the context shifting actually shifts helps shape the outcomes. I remember in one month there was like a ton of workshops, and it might have been February where there were very few. But I think that's actually perhaps overstated. I don't think there's actually a tremendous amount of metagame variation within a certain metagame cycle from month mm-hmm. to month. I I think I think it's I think basically like 75% of the decks are stable from month to month. In paper, um, online we've seen some pretty dramatic shifts. Well, even even though we have I I mean it's like the percentage of gush decks is, is relative, you know, even though it might go up and down. It's not like you're going from, you know, 15% gush decks to to 60% oh, well, gush. Well, that's decks. fair. Although there was, you know, there was that one top eight that had zero gush, and the next one had six gush or something like that. But no, you're right from a percentage standpoint of the metagame; those numbers haven't varied by ten percent at the most, really. Yeah, and and even if you have two decks that vary by ten percent month to month, it's usually because one's growing up and the other's going down. So the net is actually just smaller than the than the total amount of shifts. Well, anyway. And then the reason I the reason I say that is because if you believe that metagames are relatively stable from month to month, then actually knowing the metagame doesn't actually tell you the it, it the specific metagame for an event actually loses its contextual value as in terms of determining performance if the comparisons are roughly mm-hmm. the same, mm-hmm. right? So anyway, that's a, that's an argument against really caring too much about the overall metagame. Well, we're this is an, that's another topic that we're going to keep our eyes on yes. because it's a very interesting one and our fortunately, despite all the best efforts of Wizards, our data regarding vintage events does continue to improve over time, I think. <laughs> it's one of the things we're grateful for. Yep. Well, it wouldn't be a set review without our report card. So let's talk about how we did on Ether Revolt. note to our listeners we've started 
restricting our results for our predictions to paper tournaments with 16 or more players. So that's what these results re uh, represent. Starting with our preview card, Hope of Girapur. Steve, you predicted eight. I predicted six. The actual was zero. How is that possible? <laughs> well, I tried. I, I brought the card. I brought it as a three of to an event and, and really gave it a go. But unfortunately, about 60% of my opponents had Null Rod slash Stony Silence. And the others had Dak. And the card is just really bad in that environment. I wasn't asking why it didn't make top eight. I thought that it appeared in the top eight of the Team Sirius Invitational, at least in one of those events. Maybe they missed our it's, threshold? It's possible that that event in question missed our threshold that you're thinking of. Uh, the event I played it in wouldn't have met the threshold either, actually, now that I think about it. I think that was only a 12 to 14 person event. Interesting. But anyway, I, I believe that the environment is not right for the hope, but could be in the future. Disappointment, but noted. Right. One thing the environment is ripe for, and was, and continues to be, is Walking Ballista. You predicted, Steve, 25. I predicted 20. The actual was 16, but I would caveat that by saying that's a little bit understated because of our uh, threshold of 16, because there were a number, like maybe nine other tournaments that had fewer than 16 players where it made top eight, and it is all over the Magic Online results. So the 16 is tempered by our methodology here, but we were both pretty spot on in our prediction here. This is numbers of decks in these top eights with them. If, That's if correct. we had added, and I think we had talked about doing this, the Power 9 tournaments that online, yes. as, then I... There, there would be four or five more, if, to my mind, because I specifically remember seeing those in the results as well. Possibly more. Mm-hmm. Now, regardless, this is clearly a staple of the format of the workshop archetype uh, for the, the foreseeable and this future. Includes, this includes the Bizarre Moxen European Vintage Champs? Yeah. Yes, yes it does. Okay. Next is Crack Construct. That's zeros across the board there. Uh, Barrel Chief of Compliance, you predicted zero. I thought there might be one, but there was zero. You were right about that. After that, Tezzeret the Schemer and Inspiring Statuary were zeros across the board. Spire of Industry was an interesting one. You predicted two. I predicted one. The actual in paper events was zero, but there have been at least four appearances in dailies on Magic Online. So the card is is clearly being experimented with, but it hasn't hit the paper scene with any success yet. I, I think I would suggest going forward that we modify our methodology to include the Power 9 events, just those monthly Power sure. 9 events. But I'm not saying that this appeared any of those, but it might help. It, it did not. Okay. It did not. But still, we should consider that, yes. Next is an interesting one. Fatal Push. You predicted three. I predicted two. The actual was four. So very close for you and right in line basically with what we expected. It goes well in certain bug lists and certain four or five color control lists, but has not become a staple yet. It could still in the future. After that, Reverse Engineer was zeros across the board. Scrap Trawler was an interesting one. We both predicted zero, but there was one there was one appearance. There was one mud player who had, let's see, how many? One scrap trawler in their main deck of an otherwise Ballista Shops uh, list with Chief of the Foundry and Ravager and Ballista. One scrap trawler made a top eight in a 29-person event. Third place, not bad. But it has not caught on elsewise. Interesting. So that's it for Ether Revolt. Not a lot of predictions from us, but most of them were within... I mean, geez, the largest variance was... The Hope of Girapur, which obviously I think we were a little overzealous on. But otherwise, the largest variance was uh, four for Walking Ballista, which is a pretty 
you know, less than a less than a twenty percent variance for our prediction ability, which is pretty nice. <laughs> well, it's it's so, feast or famine for Aether. I mean, cards that just a, a smattering of cards that saw play, and then one that saw a tremendous amount. Actually, that's totally true. The actuals that were greater than zero were one scrap trawler and four fatal push. <laughs> that was it. Those were the non the other non zeros that weren't walking ballista. You're right. So we'll see if the same holds true for Amonkets. Let's do it. We like to start our set reviews by talking about the mechanics of the set, at least in brief. Sometimes they're more interesting than others. Amonkhet is like every other set of late, of the last, let's say, 20 years, and it brings with us some new mechanics and some returning mechanics. The new mechanics are, let's see, Embalm, which is kind of like flashback for creatures of a sort. You can cast it again, sometimes for a slightly different cost, and it comes back into play as a token of itself. And then if it uh, is removed again, it's exiled, so... It's very similar to flashback for creatures, if you think of it that way. Another new one is exert, which is an attack trigger. That means you exert the creature. It doesn't untap during your next untap step, and you get some additional benefit. Nearly all of those have to do directly with combat benefits, plus something, plus something, target creature can't block, that kind of thing. There are a couple of them related to card advantage, draw a card or loot, perhaps, but most of them are just modifying power and toughness. And then there's Aftermath, which is another flashback variation. In this case, it's you get to flashback as a different spell, basically. There's, it's like a split card. You can only play the one from the graveyard. It's, it's uh, interesting, but there's not much that's vintage playable because, well, as you'll see, we're going to review one of them. And there's returning mechanics. There are gods in this set, which don't function the same as the Theros gods, which were devotion-based. These gods are always creatures, but they can't attack or block until you meet some kind of condition. Using, let's say, Ronas as an example, the green god can't attack or block unless you have another creature that has power of four or greater. Uh, Cycling makes a return in a big way. There's a lot of cycling cards, and there's a lot of cycling triggers, both on the cards and other cards that look for whether or not you cycled, so that's cool. I think that's it. From a mechanical standpoint, there's not much that points specifically to Vintage. Embalm would be fine if there was an Embalm creature that was relevant to Vintage, and there is not. Similarly, Aftermath is fine. Flashback is a very very valid and powerful mechanic in Vintage, but there's not much material there. There's a lot of overcosted stuff, stuff that's targeted at limited or standard. And Exert is kind of a non-starter in vintage having a creature live and having it attack and then not untap is is pretty wishful thinking all in all so most of the new mechanics in the set are really not going to get much attention from us here in this review but that's not unusual we do still have several cards that our 12 followers on twitter asked us to review and we're going to try and tackle as many of them as we can first up is our preview card shadow of the grave 1B, instant, return to your hand all cards in your graveyard that you cycled or discarded this turn. We have a whole show dedicated to this card, so if you've listened to that show, then we won't belabor the point on most of the issues. However, I would say that 
we did hold our predictions for how this would appear in the metagame for right now. So here they are. <laughs> Steve, we talked about how this card could be used to generate advantage, and we think we determined that while there are some good overlaps with looting effects and vintage, you would have to play a lot of cards that aren't currently played to really generate good value, and we're just not willing to play the street rates and similar that it would take it's a wonderfully designed card it's a fun card i would love to be able to play it but you have to do too many contortions to build a rube Rube goldberg deck to include this and just the current metagame isn't really conducive to it either but um it's a cool card i'm gonna go zero yeah i agree it's cool and we'll keep our eye on it in the future but for right now it's a zero i think next up Gideon of the Trials for one white-white. Planeswalker Gideon, starting loyalty of three, plus one until your next turn. Prevent all damage, target permanent, would deal. Zero until end of turn, Gideon of the Trials becomes a 4-4 human soldier creature with indestructible. It's also a Planeswalker, prevent all damage to him. And then the big one, zero. You get an emblem with as long as you control a Gideon Planeswalker... You can't lose the game, and your opponents can't win the game. This card has uh, drawn the attention of everyone with a lot of excitement. Yeah, what's what's most unique about it is that it really doesn't have an ultimate, right? I mean... <laughs> right. It's, Loyalty it's, only goes up. <laughs> this, this card has a very unique ability. It's kind of a Platinum Angel ability that you can use immediately as soon as you put it into play. The question is, how valuable is that in current vintage? And... I would say in the environments of go wide with mentor, which will still persist, or uh, evasion in other ways with walking ballista and all that kind of thing, hangerback, ravager. I think this card is very vulnerable. Uh, if th- yeah. you were, you could imagine a metagame where you could where I mean, th- what it has going for it is it's a planeswalker, which is in theory hard to remove. There's no spell that really directly removes a Planeswalker in Vintage. There's Lightning Bolt, which gets close. <laughs> Shattering uh, Sudden Shock, which doesn't get close. Um, yeah, there's really there's really a, ch- a Chain of Vapor to bounce it. Uh, abrupt Decay. Abrupt Decay, there you go. That's the best one. <laughs> That's the best removal spell for this. Um, but the, the question I would have is, how easy is it to remove this if you if you just land this, activate it, how long, how easy is it to protect this? And unfortunately, I think it's very difficult. I don't think this really gains you much unless you can protect this. You really don't get much about it out of it. And even if you can protect it, you still have to find a way to win, or you have to deck your opponent, which could easily <laughs> cause to tremendous time wasting. So unless your opponent just well, scoops, yeah. So against the dominant strategies, this is just not a reliable effect because it's a planeswalker and will be inherently disadvantaged against all the creature based decks so the dominant decks in the format you can try and fight those decks with something like moat to prevent gideon from being killed but workshops already has inherent resiliency to moat thanks to ballista and hangerback and trike yeah and and as you said if you've got gideon and a moat which of those cards is really winning the game for you right it's the moat yeah i would rather have something more proactive and actually finishing the game instead of the Gideon in that scenario. Right. Yeah, Moat Moat is, with this card, is probably pretty close to a lock, especially with its plus one ability. So if your opponent does happen to have a flyer, you can... Uh, yeah. yeah, but it, it, workshops are still going to be able to get around it. No you know? question. The they can go wide also that, that Gideon can't stop. Against the non-creature-based strategies in the format, against the, the Storm decks, this is about as disruptive as 
a number of other permanents to prevent you from killing yeah. with tendrils. It's like, yeah, like Aegis a, of the Gods is my favorite example. There you go. I was going to say Arcane Laboratory, but yours is a better example. Yeah. It's, it's just another card that they would have to bounce before they kill you. Yeah. And the fact that it costs one white, white makes it inferior to most of the other choices. Yep. It's inferior to Stony Silence at disrupting them. It's inferior to Aegis of the yes. Gods in terms of speed. Yes. Yeah. It's, so interesting. Just, it's interesting. I think it, if this card does anything, it underscores how little not being prevented from winning the game actually matters. <laughs> true, true. because everything else happens up to that point that's where the real you know i mean right. that's part of what makes mentor sane, right is that mentor doesn't just win the game it prevents your opponent from winning the game it creates an unstoppable unstoppable defense it's anyway it's a it's a it's a it's a, <laughs> right. it's a, it's a interim objective an ultimate strategic objective and a tactic this is basically just an ultimate strategic objective but actually it's not that's the problem is yeah. that it's it's really a tactic and it's a it's, bad. It's only it, a tactic, it's, right. and it's a bad one at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if very, I would say bad is probably oversimple. It is very powerful and also very fragile. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. I think I would call it. No, I think I'd just call it bad. <laughs> it's the opposite it's, of a glass cannon. It's, it's like it's, a. It's like a glass bunker. <laughs> th- yeah. Exactly. It is. It is. It's. Uh, it. <laughs> It's not that it's fragile, because I don't. I it, I think it's a somewhat sturdy thing. The problem is that it's uh it's so easy to work around. That's the problem. It doesn't. Right. It, it doesn't prevent you from doing all the things that allow you to eventually get over it and then have overwhelming advantage by the time you. So it's like it's like a, a moat that has a very n- narrow defensive fortification where there's like <laughs> where so many ways to get around it. Right. It's like <laughs> you, you're. <laughs> Anyway, it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a glass bunker is probably a good metaphor. <laughs> I like it. So you're zero on on Gideon. Interesting card. I'm zero. Okay, I am as well. Next up, as foretold for two you enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep, put a time counter on as foretold. Once each turn, you may pay zero rather than pay the mana cost for a spell you cast with converted mana cost of X or less where X is the number of time counters on as foretold. This one also has a lot of people excited, primarily because of the interaction with the suspend cards that have no mana cost. So this allows you to play the likes of Ancestral Visions and Wheel of Fate and Restore Balance. So let's just quickly go over those. Ancestral Visions is the suspend Ancestral Recall. Wheel of Fate is the suspend Wheel of Fortune. Is that exactly what it does? Yes. Uh, Restore Balance is Balance. Is that exactly what it does? Yes. What are the other ones? Restore uh, hypergenesis, which is Eureka. Correct. For one-sided Eureka. No, it's it's Eureka. Your opponent can put stuff into play too. Yes, it has the same effect. It's just starting with you. Each player can put artifact, <laughs> okay. creature, enchantment, or land. Yep. <laughs> What's the fifth one? Living end, which is living death. Okay, and that's essentially All Hallows Eve. <laughs> well, uh, All Hallows Eve doesn't remove creatures from play. Oh, got it. Living living yeah. death sweeps yes. all the creatures in play out and brings everything from the graveyard it, back. It's a transposition. Um, there. I. This is an interesting card. So very, very quickly, this card, A, allows you to play the suspend cards immediately for a potentially broken effect. You're saying, like, I could dump this on turn one and then play Wheel of Fate, right? Right. The turn you play it, immediately announce Wheel of Fate. Or Ancestral or Hypergenesis. Okay. <laughs> or I can play this quick, and then do, it does it does nothing. <laughs> then on your turn, it does nothing. That so that so turn one the turn turn it comes into play it does nothing turn two your opponent's first turn with you having this in play it does nothing turn three it ramps up to one and you can play a free one mana spell right right then on turn four your opponent's second turn with you having this in play you can play a free spell if you have it at one mana and right. you still have not at turn by turn four 
actually paid for the initial investment. You get to turn nope. five, and if this is still in play, which would be your third full turn, your second turn with this in play, and your third turn with it in play, then you can actually pay two mana. <laughs> to, not pay two mana, rather. You don't pay two mana, but you can play a two mana spell, like a young pyromancer or a merchant score, a demonic tutor. And right. that point, you've actually recoup the investment. <laughs> so it's not until turn five that you really recoup your investment. It's not really until turn sixes or seven that you actually kind of turn a profit, a real profit. As such, unless you're planning to win the game the turn you play it, a la Living End or Hypergenesis, this card incentivizes you to have a strategy that involves still being in play three or more turns from now. Yes. <laughs> and still being relevant to casting so, spells. So let's, I think we can safely uh, rule out this this ladder plan because this doesn't seem like it's very good in vintage. It's slower than smokestack. So let's turn <laughs> let's turn to the first option, right? Hypergenesis uh, does not seem very good in current vintage. You can play show and tell right now, right? And it's just as good, right? Um, I'm 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 debating whether or not that's that's really fully true. But it's but close I would tell to true. you that. It's probably true, especially because this, the as foretold in the Hypergenesis plan, takes two cards out of your hand. So it's like a th at least a three-card combo that has to all be in your hand at once yeah. for it to have any, any effect. Yeah, and you all, exactly, all in your hand. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah, uh, and show and tell is a two-card combo already and, and hard to make reliable. Right. So uh, this seems worse than that. Hypergenesis is not show and tell here. Um, the other, another option is restore balance. Balance actually seems decent. seems decent. But, <laughs> but, but I'm not sure if balance is really what you want to be doing against the workshop decks, or even necessarily the, maybe against the mentor decks. That's okay. If your balance cost, if balance costs three, it would barely be playable against workshops today. Unrestricted balance at three would still be hard to play against workshops today because the difference between one, two, and three is so huge. And also, if you're resolving a three mana blue enchantment against workshops this isn't the one you want to put on the stack can you play it at instant speed on your opponent's turn no it just allows you to play a spell that you would normally be able the to suspend play. spells are they all sorceries um the five that we've been discussing are okay that's i'm pretty sure they i'm pretty sure they, there isn't an instant suspend spell because why would there be why would there yeah that's why i was asking yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Ancestral Visions, that seems decent, but I'm not sure if it's worth it. The two cards and the mana investment just to get, you know, you're only netting one card if you play this into Ancestral Visions. Unless you hit the second Ancestral Vision, then you're off to the races. But, um, and then Wheel that's of Fate. That's a lot of, yeah, that's a lot of things that need to come together. Wheel of Fate, that seems good, but you can't actually play any more spells for free, and you need to have both cards. Uh, I'm going to say this card is not vintage playable. I actually think it's better in those long game strategies that you have already dismissed. I think it's closer to playable in something like Nahiri Control or Landstill. But even then, I, I just don't think it's worth the investment. Weak. You're better off playing a mana producing card. Yeah. yeah I... In those kind of decks, if you have reached the point where you're still in the game three to five turns later, you, you're probably all right. <laughs> I guess is my point is if those decks have survived as long as it would take to make this good then something else must be going right you're better off having another business spell than this yeah that sounds right to me yeah. um, the other thing is this can't you don't really get a ton of value out of this against workshops I mean if this said instead of paying the for zero but paying for I guess I guess even free wouldn't do it because the sphere effects would still mount additional costs right yeah they'd have to 
jump through a lot of hoops to make <laughs> playing the spells avoid the spheres too. It's technically yeah. possible, but yeah, there's no way they would. You'd have so, to do yeah. You'd have to phrase it very odd, and even then, it would probably would still be impacted by Trinisphere. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> You're totally right. Yeah. <laughs> Trinisphere. It never gives up. It doesn't. No, I know this really needs to cost three. <laughs> uh, I'm going zero on this card. It's intriguing. Yeah. It's intriguing as a thought experiment, but at least sweaty dismissed. I agree. I am zero as well. What's next? Okay, we're we're probably not going to be zero on this next one. Let's talk about by force. For XR, Sorcery, Destroy X Target Artifacts. Straight and to the point. And also, <laughs> yeah. and also easily comparable to some existing effects in Vintage. Yes, the, the Especially most, Shattering Spree. Yes, I, I mean, the card that I think is probably... Well, it's hard to say what's closest, but the card that strikes me as potentially closest to this is Rack and Ruin, which for three mana yeah. destroys two artifacts, which is exactly what this does. The difference is that Rack and Ruin is an instant, and cost three, and obviously this can scale. So for two mana, you can destroy one artifact, which is the cost of shatter, for three, two, which is rack and ruin. For four mana, you get three artifacts, which I don't think there's a card that does that. The question, the question- Actually, I think there is. What is it? Three artifacts for four <laughs> mana? <laughs> yes, uh, actually, Steve, there is a card that does that. The commander card, Fiery Confluence, the red one, oh. is, two, is two RR for a sorcery, and it says choose three. You may choose the same mode three times. Uh, more than once, I mean. Uh, for, uh, first choice is Fiery Confluence does one damage to each, each creature. Second mode is two damage to each opponent. And the third mode is destroy target artifact. So you can destroy three artifacts at two RR in Vintage today if you want. <laughs> Funny. Um, and if, for four mana, you also get Shatterstorm anyway. So, I mean, literally, uh, the, yep. <laughs> the original the original Shatterstorm. And then at the other extreme end, there's um, it, Red X, there's um, Melt, what's it called? Meltdown? Meltdown, yep. Which is the one. Also, that... Yeah, also Hammer Mage. You remember Hammer Mage? No. That's the Spell Shaper one that does the Meltdown effect if you discard a card and oh, play Red yes, X. Yes, yeah. That's the one that destroys uh, artifacts converted mana cost of X or less. Right. Um, so for one mana, you can destroy all zeros, two, all ones, and so on. Um, and, and then there's Vandal Blast, which is the kind of go big one. And then historically, you had Ancient Grudge playing a very critical role in the vintage format. And then before that, for a very brief period, we played Primitive Justice, which was the predecessor <laughs> in uh, in some of the original Burning Tendrils deck lists in around and, 2000. And we should not forget to cite the blue ones, Dak and Hercules and, and Rebuild. Right. I was just trying to keep them more directly direct comparisons. But in terms right, of actually right. dealing with artifacts on the board, oh, there's wear tear, of course, as well, which is the sh essentially shatter grafted onto uh, a race. But um, the issue is number one: fragmentize is one mana. There's fragmentize, which exists in white, which is very popular, and shattering spree one mana just is better at dealing with one card. Shattering spree also has the advantage of being uncounterable because you can copy it. So sh shattering spree. And um, and also Ingotchuer being a creature evading Thorn, but also harder to counter. You can't Flusterstorm an Ingotchuer. Um, and an Ancient Grudge by flashing back, hard to counter. You can counter one part of it, but not the flashback. So all those cards have advantages over this. This is a sorcery. It's not a creature, so it doesn't get around Thorn. It doesn't split itself up, so it's easier to counter with a single counter spell, despite the fact that it can scale up. The one key advantage this card has, it has is that Compared to Shattering Spree and these other cards, you don't need the deep red investment. So in a deck like Blue Moon that has like Ancient Tombs or a combo deck that has Ancient Tombs in the sideboard, 
a Burning Wish for this, you can actually do more damage with a bunch of colorless mana, like a Mana Crypt, an Ancient Tomb, a Mana Vault, something like that. Um, you can you can also insulate yourself from Wasteland better and still hit multiple artifacts. Right. The problem, though, is that the way workshops are constructed right now, A, they're not very vulnerable to a single, removing a single or even, you know, whatever spell. And they often can do a lot of damage when you do. Like, if you hit a Ravager, they can just remove the modular to the other stuff. If you hit a Hangerback Walker, it explodes in your face. If you hit a Walking Ballista, they can just, or a Trike, they can just throw the stuff in your face. Anyway, it's still, you know, useful. But a Plow is often just better on the Workshop creatures, because then they can't modular, and so on and so forth. Uh, DAC is often just better, because, and Hercules for the same reasons. But DAC often because you steal the Hangerback before they can distribute the counters, and so on. So, I mean... It seems to be, it's situationally, it's sometimes better than the other cards, but I think the times in which it's going to be better is dwarfed by the times in which it's going to be worse than all the aforementioned cards. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> so, <laughs> in, yeah. so in certain decks, right, you, you alluded to Blue Moon, you could you could see this seeing play as a one-of or a two-of in Blue Moon in addition to some other anti-artifact effect, right? Right. Maybe. But Blue Moon is a is a you know, a one to three percent kind of deck. So if that happens it's gonna be one Z two Z in our results. <laughs> at at most, right? And there's yeah. no guarantee that Blue Moon even shows up in an event in this day and age. Yeah, and if you're a combo deck and you just wanna get rid of the sphere effects, you're not gonna be playing this, you're gonna be playing Hercules. Probably. Yep. Unless you're a Burning Wish combo deck, then maybe, maybe. one in the sideboard. Yeah. But that's also the sort of thing that rarely exists at the moment. Yeah. And yeah, I think I would describe this card as playable, but super duper fringe. It doesn't. Yes. It doesn't go into yes. the big mainstream decks like it doesn't go into Jeskai Mentor. I don't think over anything they play. It, w- it might have gone into Grixis. Nah, probably not. Even though Grixis Pyromancer is now dead. Yeah, I just don't think this has a home. I think you just nailed it. It's playable, but super duper fringe. Yeah. I'm inclined to think that this is the kind of card certain players will be attracted to. Players that like Blue Moon, players that like Nahiri Control might be attracted to have one of these. So in that sense, it could be a non-zero number in our predictions, but it's a less than less than three probably. So yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to go one or two. I'll go with two so that you can take the over or the under if you want. I'll take the under. <laughs> All right, fair enough. That brings us to Glorious End. 2R, instant, <laughs> end the turn. <laughs> At the beginning of your next end step, you lose the game. <laughs> Our latest Final Fortune iteration, Steve. I was, yeah, it really is. I mean, it, at the surface, it looks like a time stop, but it's really more Final Fortune than time stop, isn't it? So It is, it is. To break it down, it's kind of an inverse of, of uh, Final Fortune. Final Fortune allows you to take the next turn. This Presumably, you're playing it on your opponent's upkeep, so it ends their turn, so functionally becomes your next turn. But they do get an oppor- they do get part of an upkeep. <laughs> so it's not just they don't just lose their whole turn; they'll get part of an upkeep. The one difference between this and Final Fortune, besides the fact that Final Fortune only costs two mana, is that you can actually sequence these in a way that prevents the end step, the delayed trigger, from ever actually occurring. That's the one advantage, right, Kevin? Which, right, which is pretty savage. I mean, yeah. so, you, so, so what you're talking about is you play one of these on their upkeep and it ends the turn. You go to your turn and you put the trigger on the stack. You do whatever you want to do on your turn, but at the end of that turn, you put the trigger on the stack from the first one and you cast another one. Yes. 
thereby yeah. avoiding death and going to another turn. Or in your second main. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. Right. This is like Groundhog Day. <laughs> uh, you need you need to win though. <laughs> you know, you need you need this the second one to resolve. It's going to be. An- <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on ground. If someone if someone actually puts together a deck that involves playing this card turn over turn, it simply ground. must be named Groundhog Day. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, you're right. You need to either have a solution that involves finding the next one of these, which is not out of the question, I suppose. But yeah, you need to win the game. It's pretty comical, though, that you can chain these together. Well, I, I consider Time Walk to be the best card in Magic, actually. And, mm. and, and best is defined in different ways. I think you know people often said, Lotus or Ancestral, but I think the Time Walk is the card I consider the the least unrestrictable card because it's the card that ultimately breaks all the other cards. If you can chain them together, your opponent literally never will get a relevant we, turn. Uh, we but, covered that on one of but, our shows, but it was probably twenty episodes ago now. Probably probably longer. But the problem with with um, this card and time time walk functions so flexibly in that sometimes it's just a developmental. Card. This takes when the threat that the kind of um, um, when the axe is hanging over your head, you know, when the guillotine is just dangling right there, you don't really get developmental time. You have to do something <laughs> immediately, right? It's like you don't get to like, you know, play a right. early game glorious end. On the contrary, the, the the situations in which you can play this card are, are much narrower. You either have to have a game winning effect on the board, like a oath of druids or a tinker or something or a mentor and even then you have to set up just so you're going to win the next turn and if you don't have any of those you need another glorious end to stave off death death <laughs> so i mean there's no other cards that end the turns immediately right besides unplayable uncastable cards like time stop right well uh, there's the Fundile, remember oh, sundial of the infinite sundial of the infinite right which <laughs> you can combo with this right because sundial yeah. only applies on your turn but you if you have the Fundile in play then this becomes a pseudo time walk yeah assuming you can activate the sundial too there you go there's something <laughs> that is something it's also funny when you mentioned that you're casting this on their upkeep it occurred to me that this also has an amplifying effect for any negative triggers on their upkeep, right? So if you've got smokestack, yes. you get to you get to dig the knife in just a little bit by making them sack something and then end their turn. <laughs> but I think the fact that they sack the land is going to be a little overshadowed by the fact that you're, you're about to die. To die, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't, yeah, I don't think there's much to be made of that. But hey, I could be wrong. Maybe there's something that's a little bit more bombastic that can be done. Yep. Unfortunately, uh, upon close inspection, this just doesn't doesn't seem to fare very well against Final Fortune. I mean, I, it's you're probably better off paying just two mana to get the next turn and not have to dilly dally by giving an, an, them an untapped and a part of an upkeep. Like, right. You know. And there hasn't been a vintage deck in decades, maybe, that actually functionally succeeded in casting the same spell turn over turn for that primary purpose right? right okay there's decks that you know there's gush engine that's one thing that's an engine but i i would be very surprised if anyone could find an example of a deck that just plays the same sorcery or other or the other kind of spell one turn after another toward victory and you remember mark perez put together that blue green deck that was designed to to cycle through his time walk over and over again with a bunch of regrowths and yes and eternal yes. witness that deck was that was 2003 or four maybe give or take anyway uh, yeah, so that strategy I don't think has any kind of merit. And as you put it, if you wanted to try to just win the game next turn, you'd already be playing Final Fortune in Vintage, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't think this has a home. It's funny, but I don't think it has a home. I'm going to go with zero. Yep, me too. Next, we come to Harsh Mentor. One R, 
creature human cleric. Whenever an opponent activates an ability of an artifact, creature, or land on the battlefield, if it isn't a mana ability, Harsh Mentor deals two damage to that player. Two, two. There's a lot going on here. You're punishing your opponent for activating their fetch lands, for tapping a creature for a non-mana ability, say Goblin Welder, mm -hmm. for activating Sensei's Divining Top. Or Time Vault. <laughs> Time Vault is a good example. That's true. Key, key, um, vault, does, key vault right there is four damage. Wait. Yeah, that's, yeah it's four damage. Yeah, yeah. it's four damage. And notably, this does not hit Planeswalkers. No. Which I find a little strange, but maybe they just wanted their pet cards to not be disrupted this good. Uh, so let's talk. Let's get the, the basics out of the way. 1R is imminently playable in Vintage, right? We've got uh, Young Pyromancer at that mana cost, for example, commonly played. 2-2 two, two is, a, is a standard grizzly bear body that we've talked about for years. So at the it's face a human. value... This, it's a human, too. It's a human. Yeah. yeah, this passes all the baseline tests for a playable vintage bear, so to speak. Uh, we've had cards that were harder to cast than this that, that won the Bazaar of Moxon two years ago. Uh, Scab Clan Berserker, yes. right? Yeah. This, this follows in the mold of Scab Clan Berserker very closely in terms of punishing uh, commonly activated abilities, whereas Scab Clan punished commonly played spells. So maybe there's to the there's to there's something to this going into five color humans or less than five color humans. It's it reminds me a lot of Combal actually. Interesting. It, but it, it obviously does, the applications are totally different. Yeah, that's that's the problem. Is is <laughs> playing spells? I think is much more punishing than activated abilities. Yeah, I'm trying to think about. But what, yeah. But hold on, this this card hurts workshops a lot more than Combal did. Yes, it, it definitely does. I, the, the one problem, though, is that it's trivially easy for the workshop player, if they have a ballista or a trike, to deal with this. If they don't, they're right. in a world of trouble because <laughs> then they can't do Ravager, they can't activate factories without taking damage, they can't activate hangerbacks, they can't, I don't know. Waste, wastelands hurt them. Wastelands. I mean, almost everything they do is, is impacted by this. On the other hand, White Eldrazi is not. The Displacer is the only thing that really gets problem problematic with this thing. Um, uh, the Displacer and their Wastelands, but otherwise... Yeah, I mean, Thought Not Seer so. and, and Reality Smasher and all that stuff. Is, Thalia, yep. Yeah. Um, both Thalias are unimpacted by it. Right. This... <sighs> The, the the only other thing that this thing is kind of annoying with is is uh, death right shaman and even then you know you can be taking two damage and getting two life at the same time. Um, yeah, sometimes the, the the right thing to do will be to drain your opponent, and sometimes you just won't activate it. That's true. It's it does it doesn't moderately disruptive. It doesn't slow to slow down Gristlebrand that much either. Um, you know, it just makes it nine life, draw seven <laughs> cards, right? And it does. Yeah. So it's true. This has a pretty big impact on fetch lands, but that's about the only thing that um, it hurts in Mentor other than Jace Vren's Prodigy. Because it doesn't hit Dak or Jace, uh, that is to say Jace the Mind Sculptor, or Jace Telepath Unbound. So it is moderately disruptive to fetch lands early on, and then tele uh, sorry, uh, Jace Vren's Prodigy. This is interesting. I, I don't think it's disruptive enough to be good in any one matchup. That is to say, it's only a cog. It's it's not like we, we when we talked yeah. about Comball, we talked about how you <laughs> had to answer Comball if you were a gush deck, right? Right. This card doesn't have that. You know what this card would have been really savage against Kevin? <laughs> Psychotog. Wow. <laughs> no kidding. That's amazing. <laughs> this card yes. would have been the answer to Psychotog. But oh, and Morphling. Oh God, yes. <laughs> wow. How good would this have been against Keeper back in the day? <laughs> 
Of course, they didn't have fetch lands, but still. Yeah. That's funny. Psychotog is especially, <laughs> but yeah. I'm curious. I don't actually know how Sylvan Library functions today. I've given up on understanding how it's activated <laughs> at the moment. Okay, it's back to being a trigger. I was, <laughs> it's funny. I think I think Joe Fiorini said something similar about not remembering which version of, of Sylvan Library had persisted to this day because it was an activated ability at one point. But no, it's it's a trigger these days. So this doesn't punish Sylvan Mentor especially. Yeah, I just, it's, this is a comical answer to Key Vault, right? Yep. So, but answer is maybe the wrong Overstating term. it. Because, yeah, because those Key Vault decks f- frequently have built-in answers, right? They're going to have Creature Removal, yes. they're going to have Jace the Mind Sculptor, that kind yes. of thing. So it's only an answer in the sense that they don't immediately have the solution and they're at less than 10 life, so there's a clock on them yeah. as to whether or not they no, can get there. No, you're right. This card would have been good against the deck. It prevents them from... I mean, they can only activate JMD Tome and Disrupting Scepter so many times, but this thing is going to get removed quickly. Um, yeah. In Modern Vintage, it, it's good for, for 2 to 6 damage in certain matchups, but We'll probably just die thereafter. It does add up, though. If you run this and scab plan, that adds up. Yeah, I just I don't see, I don't see this as filling a gap. Unfortunately, it's a punisher mechanic. It's like you can activate this ability. If you do, you're going to take this amount of damage. You know. Yep. Well, the the humans decks have been really on the decline lately, and those that have had success have been mostly green white based, right? That's true. The, uh, the, been, the five, I actually the, think they've been mostly five color. But anyway, have they really, I thought. Yeah. I thought the last. I thought the. Uh, I thought the Eternal Weekend results we looked at, oh, those didn't have a color-wise breakdown. I'm trying to think it was a tournament before that we looked at that had heavy green-white. But but at any rate, five-color hasn't hasn't taken off as a dominant archetype, and I don't think this pushes it to that. But I do think it's playable in that deck, right? So to to use our prediction methodology, I do think that people will play this card. Well, well, where and how much? And just humans? I mean, I could see it popping up in humans, yeah, but... I think just humans, but that's good for... That's good for two, three, four results in the next three months, maybe. Possibly. It's still, it's still small numbers, I mean, but it's, this is doing, I think it's playable. This is doing almost nothing against a mentor deck, though. Well, so such a human... Those humans decks are metagame decks, yeah. you know, if nothing else, right? So such a humans deck that sees this and says, okay, this pairs well with Scab Clan as a Punisher kind of creature. Maybe those decks are trying to prey on the <laughs> perceptibly weakened mentor strategy and... Maybe they're running these plus main deck sudden shocks, and and that's how you get one over on mentor. I'm not saying it's going to take over the metagame. I'm just saying the the sort of people who are attracted to five color humans will probably be attracted to this card. The sort of people who got excited by Comball might might go the heavier red route with this and Scab Clan, and that might make that deck a little bit fewer colors and maybe a little bit more reliable. And you sudden shock, <clears throat> excuse me, sudden shock is a, a reasonable mentor. Uh, anti-mentor strategy that's also good against workshops so uh, there might be something to that i don't think it tremendously ratchets up the performance of that deck but i think it's a potential new direction okay well get- I'm, I'm comfortable predicting a non-zero for number for this i just think it'll be well, less than five too go ahead, go ahead. two for for similar reasons to buy force right so i'm, I'm gonna go with <laughs> i'm gonna go with one i, I was gonna, i'm gonna go one as well okay Bra- no, we're no, breaking no. from you tradition know, you know here. what i'm gonna go zero i don't i don't think it's okay. gonna i don't think it's gonna appear in the next couple months all right fair enough this next one is a, a similar kind of conversation surrounding it, I think. Soul Scar Mage for red creature human wizard prowess. If a source you control would deal non-combat damage to a creature an opponent controls, put that many minus one minus one counters on that creature instead. One, two. 
there's a there's kind of a lot going on here. This card has lots of lots of buttons on it. One mana, one two prowess. So it shares a lot in common with Monastery Swift Spear in terms of its body. Doesn't have the haste, but you get this turn your non-combat damage into wither kind of effect. Yeah. This might be an anti-mentor plant. <laughs> I, I'm not. I, I can't be sure. I mean, m- maybe that maybe that's not a thing. But it certainly has a, a flavor of fighting mentor to it, right? If you pyroclasm, they can respond with prowess, but eventually that mentor is going to die from that pyroclasm, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't remember any card in Vintage that actually turned damage into minus one, minus one, except the closest analog was poison. Not poison, uh, what was it called? Infect. Infect, right. Yeah. Which kind of did that. Well, there have been... There, there, there is a card that gives creatures wither, but that's not kind of not what you're talking about, right? No, no, I'm not. You're, you're talking about non-creatures, right? Yeah. So this, I mean, what does it mean exactly? Non-combat damage. So like you. Well, all, all the direct, all spells bolt, basically. So yeah. bolt and pyroclasm and similar, and then ballista and trike would yeah. fall under this, and then any planeswalker so, that dealt damage, which. There really isn't one that's playable right now in Vintage, but any of the Chandras that do damage would put the counters on. And what else? There's got to be another example we're forgetting. Yeah, I guess, I guess is it, how much is it worth it to you to turn that damage into a minus one, minus one counter? It's very marginal value. Very yeah. marginal. Um, it's. I don't think it's worth an additional mana, let alone an additional card. <laughs> well, well, you're right. Yeah, on both fronts, I think. It has some positive benefits okay so it has this effect has positive benefits against the two dominant decks it's good against mentor because it means their prowess can't escape the damage over time if you could do two damage to a mentor it'll die at at the end of turn without other intervening effects and similarly minus one minus one counters have positive interactions with ravager and hanger back and ballista but the odds of that working out in your favor is almost zero because every one of those creatures is going to just get out of its own way before the counters happen with the exception of an unprotected hanger back right if they have hanger back and you damage it it just removes plus one plus one counters from it which is nice but not great as you put it probably not worth a card and an extra mana to whatever burn spell we're talking about non-lethal burn spell that's a lot of conditions so are you are you comfortable adding this to any deck that has pyroclasm or rolling earthquake no, or no 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 <laughs> uh, uh, and those cards that aren't even played right now yeah there's not enough direct damage played right now in vintage for this to help and also the recent restrictions mean that the young pyromancer decks all got worse so so the odds of lightning bolt seeing play are even reduced uh, yeah but I think this is just in the wrong place if there was a young pyromancer deck that already liked lightning bolts then maybe. Jeskai Mentor would never add this to support their lightning bolts, and they would never add pyroclasms or anything like that for any kind of mirror match. Some kind of recurring damage source, something that tapped for damage, or like Planeswalker, would really like this, I think. But if you've got a recurring activation of a Planeswalker, you're doing well in most matchups to begin with. Yeah, I just can't think of an example, that a deck right now that really wants this, and plus it suffers from the mental misstep problem. And against Mentor and Shops, this creature can't really combat on its own. Right. Yes, if right. you're if you have right. guts and you're bluffing and you're good at bluffing, you could swing into a mentor with your one two prowess against their two two prowess. But the odds of that mattering are slim. They're just going to take the damage. So I, I don't know. This this doesn't impress. Yeah, I'm going to go with zero here, especially with right next to harsh mentor. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'd be much more interested to play a Harsh Mentor deck than a Soulscar Mage deck. I am. Are you going with zero as well? Next up is Manglehorn for 2G, Creature Beast. When Manglehorn enters the battlefield, you may destroy target artifact. Artifacts your opponent's control enter the battlefield tap. Yeah, except for the last sentence, it's essentially Tabi Orangutan. So the question, the question is, yep, it's, it's <laughs> the question exactly is, that. what is the last part add? I thought about it, and it doesn't strike me that that really makes much of a difference. I mean, how many times does the Hangerback Walker creature tokens coming to play tap matter, or the, um, I don't know, a Ravager or a Walking Ballista or a Foundry Inspector coming to play tap matter? It just, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it really doesn't. Um, Fleetwheel Fleet Cruiser. Cruiser. Yeah, that's a good I can example. Think of. Um, now, the one thing that does... So, but yeah, this is mana disruption. Get. The one thing so, that does matter is that it makes... Obviously, if you can get this down, it has a, a kind of um, root maze effect, right? On your opponent's artifact acceleration. Right. But it doesn't stop a workshop or an ancient tomb. And nor does it stop the mana enabling power of Boundary Inspector. So it's pretty weak, I think. I think it's pretty weak, actually. There's an, there's an ironic... In- yeah. tension there too because if you can play it on turn one then you're probably not destroying an artifact right you're playing on your first turn before <laughs> their turn you're not destroying an artifact so you're not getting both benefits out of it wow that's a really good point yeah i didn't even think about that it's it's self-defeating basically at both ends of the utility spectrum if you play it late then the stuff coming into play tap matters very little and if you play it super early then you're not getting the value of destruction where's the sweet spot where do you really want this you want it you want it on turn two, right? This is the sweet spot of this card, is on turn two exactly. You destroy the first thing they do and then slow everything else down. But that's not good enough. That's that's not disruptive. In fact, this is I think this is more of a an anti-storm card almost, right? This is functions a little bit like <laughs> a thorn of a sort does. against that's storm. Probably, yeah. And there just aren't barely. enough dedicated Well, I'll tell you where it does actually shine. It is very good against paradoxical outcomes. Yes. I get Against yep. them going slows off. them down a lot because your opponent then has to untap the paradoxical outcome again. Agreed. So it's good against outcome, but not it does. It, yeah, it doesn't stop it. Po- Possible. So it's, it functions like a Thalia kind of against outcome. I, I, no, but it's yeah, actually I it's, it's better, better than, than that. Thalia. It's better than a Thalia. Interesting. So then the next question is: Does this have any home <laughs> at all? Sylvan Mentor. There's no way Sylvan Mentor is going to have this over Stony Silence no against way. outcome, right? And it's not a human, so it doesn't benefit from the human synergies so we discussed have to a minute be a ago. It doesn't want to play Stony Silence, but needs an answer to. Um, it plays green and needs an answer to Paradoxical Outcome. But all any deck that fell into that category would have Null Rod. Yeah, I think that's right. This is an Oshawa Stompy card. So, <laughs> you, so you need to be. So it's it's even worse than that. You need to be an artifact heavy deck that can't afford to run Null Rod or Stony Silence, right? Yeah. That does no. And there's no <laughs> such deck. Because all the other fact heavy decks can afford to run Null Rod. They're you know, they're ancient tomb decks. They can afford to if they want it. Yeah. No, this this kind of just doesn't have a home. It's it's interesting. It the the sum of the parts are less than each individual <laughs> one. <laughs> What's the it's the opposite of that greater than the sum of its parts. It's less than the sum of its parts. Interesting. Yeah, I guess I'm gonna go with zero on Manglehorn then. <laughs> are you zero as well? Unfortunately. All right, next up is our one split card from the set that we're going to review, and that is... Now explain how these split cards work, because they're different than other split cards. Yeah, absolutely. So the aftermath mechanic is really what's key here, and that is you can play it from your graveyard, 
but you can only play the aftermath part from your graveyard. So this example is failure to comply. So failure is an instant for one U that says return target spell to its owner's hand. Comply is a sorcery for white that says choose a card name until your next turn your opponents can't cast spells with the chosen name. Failure is the top half. You can play that from your hand. Comply is the aftermath or bottom half that you can only play when it's in your graveyard. So failure is clearly a remand clone that doesn't draw you the card. It's exactly remand without drawing a card. So clearly the two halves of this card are meant to be played in concert with one another. You you remand a card to their hand and then the next turn you pay a white and say, oh, by the way, you can't play that this next turn either. So you delay the spell by two turns effectively. Do you think this card is better than remand or worse I, than remand? That is, would you rather have would you rather draw a card when playing remand? Or would you rather have this built-in backup yeah, ability? I, I think I would rather have this card in many contexts in Vintage because the thing you're delaying is so backbreaking that you might not have another answer to it. But it's worth noting that there is one other functional difference between this and remand, and that is remand says counter-target spell, and this says return target spell to his owner's hand. So this gets around Cavern, which I think is one of the things that makes it slightly more relevant yeah. to Vintage. Right. So this avoids cavern in a way that that um, remand does not, and then comply re- avoids cavern again, which is nice. So I think this has a, I think this has extra relevance against something like White Eldrazi. It's not yeah. great. I mean, it's it's not backbreaking. It's not going to turn that match on its on its heels or anything. I'm just saying that that when if you're on the play and you go land Mox and your opponent goes cavern Mox Thalia, you can. Avoid that Thalia for two turns. Another issue with this card that limits its its appeal and usage is that it has white built in. If you're not playing white, you're going to play Remand if you're going to play this effect. Or you're not going to play this effect. So. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I don't think that's a major issue given that white is the dominant non-blue True. color in Vintage right now. That's, that's not going to be a major limiting factor right now. But it does prevent this from having much utility in Grixis. It's also worth noting that even though aftermath is not flashback you still get value out of this when you loot it away right you can so you can pitch this with jvp and just and just play the comply side for one mana which in certain matchups is going to be relevant if especially against something like a storm matchup right when you're you're fighting for every ounce of time that you can then you could play turn one jvp and say go and they play out some mana and maybe they play defense grid or something and you and you're just up back against the wall already you can loot away failure to compliance and, and cast comply and then name whatever you want you can name tendrils or you can name mentor if that's the build or you can just name outcome and say i need to slow you down for a turn that kind of thing i think there's some some nice value i mean because even though it's not literal flashback it's functional flashback in a lot of ways yeah i think this spell is close to being playable it's you know it's card disadvantage at its face though it this is a purely a tempo card and vintage has been something of a tempo format for the last couple of years in a lot of ways Men, you know the mentor mirrors are very tempo oriented a lot of time so this has advantages in that sense it's worth noting that you can just tempo out your your mentor playing opponent by bouncing their mentor and then saying you can't play mentor next turn that could be enough to just win the game for you if mm-hmm. it's a mirror and it's pretty disruptive even against something like shops Again, a lot of my examples are on the play, obviously, but if, if you're on the play and you just play Landmox Go and they play Thorn, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Ancient Tomb Thorn, then counter it and next turn you can't play it again, that buys you a lot of time against shops to do things I don't you need really to do. have a lot of faith in two mana counter spells in Vintage these days. I just don't, I don't see a lot of space for that. Even with this delaying tactic, would you, just, I mean, would you rather just counter the spell? <laughs> 
like a mana leak or a mana drain most of the time. I That's understand. A, a fair point, but at the same time, you can't loot away a mana drain and get any value out of it. So there, there's something to be said for this having flashback, right? By your logic, you would never play Ancient Grudge. Um. Well, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> See, so that you have to count this as, as yeah. some kind of card advantage, even though it's yeah, it really is. only it tempo really advantage. Is. So yeah. I'm completely granting you that it's really only tempo advantage, but it's like double tempo advantage. It's two turns of not of having something not in play, and so I brought I brought up the cavern example immediately because that's where you really want it. You really want this against White Eldrazi against Thalia. You really want this against Thought Not Seer, where where none of the other counter magic in the format is going to get it done, save Mind Break Trap. But in a lot of other cases, matchups that are slower or more attrition-based, you're completely right, but that's because this is a tempo counterspell. That's why Remand isn't basically not played in Vintage, because it's a pure tempo counterspell, but it's also unreliable at doing what it needs to do. Also, it's worth noting that this card and Remand are both just awful against the free spells. Like, they're not any good against Mental Misstep or force a will most of the time or gush a lot of the time or probe at all really so a lot of the stuff that is most common due to its efficiency in the format punishes playing spells like this and that might that right there might be the death knell i can tell a card that i think is playable by how much i don't want my opponent to have it and this is one of those cards it's going to be situationally bad situationally almost useless granted but i can i can feel myself getting blown out by this and that tells me that there's some value there interesting so this would have been even better in a four probe environment too. Oh, that's a great point. That's a really good point. So unfortunately, this this actual this specific card just got a little bit worse thanks to the restriction. It sounds to me like you're not putting any weight on this, and I don't think it's a I don't think it immediately goes in. But I mean, to a lot of decks. But I would point out that um, a whole lot of mentor decks just lost uh, two to four spaces in their main deck, <laughs> and so people will be looking for things to play, and those decks. Um, yeah, people are going to get creative with with one or two slots in their a lot of their decks right now. One quick question I, I did want to point out. This card just has to be in your graveyard to flash it back. So that makes it a... It's not flashback, but it's similar to that, right? Aftermath. Yeah. So it's, Aftermath so, is functionally the same as flashback once So there is one other additional use, which is... The, in, it's kind of a dredge oh, card. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Sure. Dredge can use this in the, the, the tempo disruption therapy, manner in the right. same way. Uh, well, I'm, yeah. Similarly, right. I mean, that you don't right. pay mana for the therapy, so there's that. But but yeah, absolutely, it, and it, it partners very well with therapy too, right? So you play you play Bizarre Go, activate Bizarre on their end step, dump one of these and a therapy, get yourself a Narco Amoeba, you therapy them. You, if you hit or not, you see what's up in their hand, and then you play Undiscovered Paradise or you play one of your other Rainbow Lands and just say comply. Whatever thing is going to be most disruptive for them not be able to play on turn two. It's also worth noting that this is kind of just a good anti-hate uh, card, right? That's what Especially I, that's in Game what I was 3 saying. for Dredge. I mean, the, I, I, I can't think of exactly how it I would can. go down. But <laughs> yeah, you th- you therapy Dredge, your opponent. Dredge can't, you, well... Um, see, you, you whiff, but you see what they have, and then you buy a turn by playing Comply. Oh, wait, no, yeah. Yeah, but I was, I was thinking about a way to keep Rest in Peace from hitting the table in Game 3. Ah, that's what I was thinking of. That is harder. And that's yeah. hard to do even if you're on the play. But there's, but it'll still happen, right? There'll still be scenarios where your opponent keeps a rest in peace hand that has no moxin. And even if you don't hit therapy, if you know the matchup and you know what they boarded, you can no, buy yourself the turn you need. So in that sense, 
in that sense, it's it's like additional therapies for the hate cards on the play in game three because you can miss you can miss your therapy in a graveyard, but still hit a comply and then just keep that rest in peace off the table for a turn. Exactly. The other interesting thing about this card is that if you're playing pitch dredge with force of will, you can then pitch pitch the remand card when it's in your hand and then use the comply in the graveyard. So it's another blue spell. Not not for force of will. Not the same card. You you have to exile. No, no. What I'm saying is that if it's but it serves both roles. Is what you mean? Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah, and also it could just be a random bounce spell. Like you know, you've got two mana up with dredge. Like a um, let's say you've got a petrified field in a in a you know city of brass effect, undiscovered paradise. You could just yeah. play this. People that's play true. dark amoebas yeah. all the time. <laughs> so do you think? Hmm. Well, obviously, it's a metagame question about which dredge decks are more successful when the metagame shifts. But I do think you've made a fair point that this is playable in a pitch dredge type list. Oh, and you don't need to overload on it either, right? You could just run one or two because your dredge, you, you see a high proportion of your cards on average. So you don't need to, ha- it's not, it doesn't have to be a four of to be effective. It could be, it could be really potent, right? If you've got two or three of them, you're going to hit it on turn your first dredge a fair amount of the time. And, so given that your first dredge reliably sees six, uh, I mean, sorry, reliably sees um, ten cards or so, and then you dredge on, your, yeah, never mind. You're reliably seeing twenty to thirty cards. Sorry, by your by your second main phase, I would say I would say this could be an interesting two of or three of in dredge for just that added bit of disruption, and it gives you something to do with a rainbow land on turn two that the deck is somewhat is frequently lacking. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because I hadn't really actively considered that, how it really works in the curve for Dredge. And I think it has a nice spot in the curve. Yeah, you just That's need a, to buy it's one. It's good one disruption, turn. partners yep. very well with therapy. Yeah, and it, and it really helps them deal with hate even more. Yeah, I like it. Oh, and so it could also just simply be proactive, right? One of the things that happens with Dredge is you, tr- yeah, you get you raced by time. other combo it's a decks. Time walk. Many, many hope of Girapur. Yeah, and when and when you play, and unlike other things that storm decks have to fight through, once Comply has resolved on Tendrils of Agony, for example, you can't just bounce it. It's just there's no other way around it. You can't play Tendrils that turn, so it's Time Walker bust, or you have to have another alternate win condition if you want to win that turn. So it's pretty pretty good disruption. Well, I don't know. I I think it's certainly playable. I think it'll be in small numbers, but if it catches on in Dredge, it could be low quantity but high number of appearances in our numbers. It could be a 5 to 10 kind of thing if it really catches on in Dredge. I don't think that'll happen right away, but I think creative Dredge players probably already know about this card and are thinking about it. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm going to go non-zero, but it's still a really low number. I don't think... I think I think a lot of people are going to feel the way you did with regard to any blue deck, right? Mentor, even though I think there's some scenarios where it's good, I think a lot of people are just going to say this so, is pure card disadvantage. I don't, I don't want to be there, yeah. especially since I just lost two of my gushes or what have you. So I think this is going to be unattractive. Even though people are looking for replacement cards, I think this is probably not the direction people will go. But exactly. it is worth noting that this is two spells well, I was for Mentor. Just, yeah, well, but- anyway, I'm going to go non-zero though. I'm, I'm going to go to... Because I think, I th- and I think those two yeah, think will either be spell. in Mont- Mentor um, or Dredge. Jeez, this is tough. The th- the problem I have with the Dredge decks is I don't know if this is a main deck card. If it is, I'm not sure it's, yeah. Ah, this is tough. It could be. I think yeah. I think some people might want it over Mindbreak Trap, right? More Mindbreak value. Trap is still fine, but this is a little bit Pitch more, dredge. a little bit more m- middle of the road, right? It's going to be more reliable in more matchups. 
Uh, I'll... Uh, I'll take one. I think it's playable. I just don't know. Okay. So I could I could envision this picking up steam in the dredge community over time. I can envision this becoming something of a staple, but I'm not a dredge expert. So that brings us to the end of our Amonkhet review. For our closing question, we don't always remember to do these on this show, but we do want to know what card you think is going to have the biggest impact on vintage from Amonkhet. Thank you for listening to episode 65 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. We get to game.